Good afternoon and welcome to the April 4th um, City, Lawrence City Commission meeting. We'll start with instructions from Sherry, our city clerk. Thank you, Mayor, and good evening, everyone. If you are attending this meeting via Zoom, please ensure you are muted and your video is off when you are not actively participating in the meeting. This allows the active meeting participants to be seen on screen. When you are participating, please unmute and turn your video on. If you have any trouble, you can send a chat. All chats go directly to the meeting host. The city reserves the right to mute people or turn individual videos off to minimize distractions during the meeting. This meeting is being recorded and broadcast on the city's YouTube channel and cable channel 25. When the mayor calls for public comment, those attending in person should approach the podium to indicate they wish to speak. Those participating via Zoom should use the raise hand function to indicate they wish to speak. Please leave your virtual hand raised until you are called on. Participants will be called upon in the order they appear on the meeting host screen. Again, please state your name before speaking and all comments will be limited to three minutes. Thank you, Sherry. We'll begin with the approval of the agenda. The City Commission reserves the right to amend, supplement, or reorder the agenda during the meeting. Are there any commissioners that would like to change the order of the agenda? Commissioner Sellers, you okay with that? Okay, mm -hmm. so I'll entertain a motion. Move to approve the agenda. Second. I got a first and a second. All in favor? Aye. 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 Passes five to zero. Okay, we're gonna go on to item B, which is proclamations. We have two tonight. One is, the first one is to proclaim the month of April 2023 as Sexual Assault Awareness Month. I believe we have a speaker or two. I just wanna welcome Mayor Ananda back in our, back in our fold here. Would um, just love to see you here. Appreciate you coming. Much for having me it's very exciting to be in front of you tonight as the executive director of the sexual trauma and abuse care center um, as most of you know the care center has been providing services in our community for more than 50 years um, we were the first sexual assault advocacy center in kansas and one of the first in the nation um, we are here tonight um, to thank you for providing this proclamation for Sexual Assault Awareness Month this week, kicking off Sexual Assault Awareness Month in Lawrence. I want to quickly share a few events that are occurring in our community um, this month to raise awareness and start conversations in our community. This Thursday is our first event. Um, we invite our whole community to our open house in our new location at 3.30 Main across the street from the hospital. Um, that is from 3.30 to 6 on Thursday, April 6th with a ribbon cutting with the chamber at four o'clock. Um, we would love for folks to come and tour a new facility um, and really participate in this event to get to know what what we do in our community. On April 10th, we're hosting a teal ribbon in the wild, asking folks to place a teal ribbon somewhere in nature or otherwise unexpected to raise awareness for Sexual Assault Awareness Month. Um, you can also tag us and post using hashtag SAAM2023 or hashtag STA Care Center. The 26th is Denim Day, as we ask folks to wear jeans to take a stand against victim blaming. Um, and you can find out more about that initiative at denimdayinfo.org. April 27th will be Take Back the 
tonight at the South Park gazebo here in town um, where we will have speakers, we will have sign making and a candlelight vigil. This is an evening honoring and supporting survivors of sexual harassment and sexual violence. This event starts at 6.30 on the 27th of April and then on 20, April 29th we have partnered with the Lawrence Humane Society and their kittens for cats for consent. Um, so you can bring your kiddo and we can talk about what body language looks like and understanding that and consent and what that looks like with kittens. Um, we do hope that all of you or some of you will join us for all or some of these events in the month of April and helping us to work to eradicate sexual violence in our community. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. So I'll read the proclamation. Whereas Sexual Assault Awareness Month calls attention to the fact that sexual violence is widespread and impacts every person in the community. Sexual Assault Awareness Month aims to raise public awareness about sexual violence and educate communities about, about how to prevent it in systems of oppression such as racism, sexism, classism, heterosexism, ageism, albeitism, and more, more contribute to higher rates of sexual assault, assault, and abuse. The, those same groups are also the most impacted by inequitable systems of oppression in our society. And whereas more than one in four black women in the United States were raped in their lifetime, more than four in five American Indian and Alaska Native women have experienced violence in their lifetime. One in three Hispanic women reported unwanted sexual contact in their lifetime. 32.9% of adults with intellectual disabilities have experienced sexual violence. And 47% of all transgender people have been sexually assaulted at some point in their lives. And as such, and whereas as such, we recognize that it will take ending all forms of oppression to end sexual violence worldwide. And whereas making a connection between various forms of oppression and the underlying causes of sexual assault is crucial to making holistic and lasting change. However, we cannot do this without recognizing historical injustice and realizing how privilege and complacency reinforces oppression. And whereas we can trace a line from sexual violence to systems of oppression, the theme of this year's Sexual Assault Awareness Month campaign is drawing connections. Prevention demands equity. This ca the camp campaign calls on all individuals, communities, organizations, and institutions to change the system surrounding us to build equity and respect within the community, workplace, and the future of our youth youth hold. In the future, our youth hold. Now, therefore, I, Lisa Larson, Mayor of the City of Lawrence, do hereby proclaim the month of April 2023 as Sexual Assault Awareness Month, and I encourage all residents to join advocates and communities across the country in taking action to prevent sexual violence and harassment. April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month, and each day is an opportunity to create change for the future. <laughs> Right. The next item we have up is a proclamation for the uh, month of April being uh, uh, National Mayor's Challenge for Water Conversation Conservation Month. Trevor. Good evening, Mayor and Commissioners. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, well, let me introduce myself. Yeah. I'm Trevor Flynn. I'm our Assistant Director for our Municipal Services and Operations Department. Uh, on Zoom, I think Kathy Richardson's uh, virtually standing with me as well. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to be here in support of our community's efforts and commitment to environmental sustainability and stewardship. 
I'm excited. The City of Lawrence is joining over 2,000 other mayors and communities across the country in the Wyland National Mayor's Challenges for Water Conservation, which allows the opportunity to inspire our residents to use water more efficiently, reduce pollution, and save energy. The program was started more than 10 years ago by mayors who are looking for alternative ways to engage their residents more deeply about the coming water challenges in the United States. Here in Lawrence, our per capita water use was approximately 94 gallons per day per person in 2022. As reported by the Kansas Division of Water Resources in their Municipal Water Use in Kansas report, we are below the statewide average, which is 106 gallons per day, and below our historic five-year average from 2013 and 2017, which was uh, 101 gallons per day. April is Earth Month and a great time to think about water conservation as we enter the growing season and start hooking up garden hoses. Outdoor watering practice can play a significant role in how we conserve water. Throughout April, the city's communication team will be providing messaging, promoting water conservation and simple ways to save water, along with other Earth Day activities. We encourage residents to participate in this challenge for water conservation and make a pledge to use water more efficiently. Thank you. Thank you, Trevor. I'll go ahead and read the proclamation now. Whereas the City of Lawrence continues to explore ways to manage residential consumption of water and power and to inspire its residents to care for our natural resources, and whereas cities can engage in efforts to inspire their communities, their own communities, as well as their neighboring cities to become better environmental stewards, and whereas the 12th Annual Wyland National Mayor's Challenge for Water Conservation is a landmark nonprofit campaign encouraging people from all walks of life to conserve water and other natural resources to help ensure a sustainable future for our communities. And whereas from April 1st to the 30th of 2023, the City of Lawrence wishes to inspire its residents to take the Wyland National Mayor's Challenge for Water Conservation by making an online pledge at mywaterpledge.com to to reduce their impact on the environment and to see immediate savings in their water and electricity bills. Now, therefore, I, Lisa Larson, Mayor of the City of Lawrence, do hereby proclaim the month of April as National Mayor's Challenge for Water Conservation, and I encourage all citizens of Lawrence to participate. Thank you, Trevor. Okay, we'll move on to item C, which is public comment, general public comment. The public is allowed to speak on issues or items that are not scheduled for discussion on the agenda. Comments should be limited to issues and items germane to the business of the governing body. The commission will not discuss or debate these items, nor will the commission make decisions, decisions on items presented during this time. Each person will be limited to three minutes. General public comment. So I'm sure you guys are all aware of what happened on the 21st. It was a death at the homeless camp. And your city staff decided to trespass reporters and advocates. And your assistant city manager committed to getting an answer to why that trespass occurred and failed to do that. Then he got mad when the citizen wanted him to answer, like he said he would by 5 p.m. that day. He got angry, angry enough to slam his car door. The city spent a week trying to justify the trespass. And with the help of Hayden Fowler at the police department and the various people involved, they realized that they didn't have it. I challenged that trespass twice. Got a summons. The second time I challenged it, 
police department said they weren't going to enforce it. But now the summons stands. This will be the fourth time. This will be the fourth time this city has prosecuted me for crap charges. And this one's going to end up in a dismissal as well because there's no case. Anybody that was out there will tell you there was no harassment going on. And your city's reaction to all this is to just add more issues. So I'm told today that I was out there earlier when the city put up all the fencing, segregated the camp, and now I'm told that the residents in the unsanctioned side can't even go over there for food. Why is that? Are they less just because they won't follow your program and trust you to do the right things? You guys have failed too many times. Moving on to another issue, the Citizens Police Review Board. I want to know what the investigation was. I sent you all the email. There was an investigation into aspects of the CPRB that was not made public. I want to know what that investigation was. Did it have something to do with Amber Sellers and her talking points or action items a few weeks ago? It's the Citizens Police Review Board. Just like this is a public meeting for the citizens to be engaged in their government. But you guys don't want to hear from the citizens. You're working to shut that down. You've been working to shut that down for quite a while. I want to know what that investigation was. Amy Lee wouldn't answer it, Dr. Turner. She decided to broach that subject but wouldn't answer. Bad times. Tony, uh, before anybody else gets back up, Tony, would you mind addressing that, please? Thank you. Well, we're going to address those comments. Yes, Mayor. A member of the CPRB raised a concern about the actions of other CPRB members. Specifically, the concern was whether there had been a violation of the Kansas Open Meetings Act. The city attorney's office looked into the concerns by conducting interviews with people involved in reviewing relevant records. We found there was not a violation of the Kansas Open Meetings Act, and the matter is closed. Thank you. Okay, other general public comment? We get to find out more? Other general public comment? been a while since I've been up here, Kirby Evers, South Isle Lawrence. Um, the last time I was up here, I was talking about uh, the end of rent income discrimination, and you guys bid vote in favor of the working class on that matter, and I appreciate that. Um, I'm back here today just because of uh, rumors of the camps, specifically stuff that has been directly brought up uh, by my friend here, um, but also stuff uh, around its future uh, I don't know, existence. Uh, I don't put too much stock in rumors um, necessarily, but the rumor that the city hall might be considering uh, to shut down the camps is something that has been floated about in, in the activist community. It's something that I hope all of you can squash in an affirmative to, uh, uh, to keep the camps open, to keep them uh, there for people who can't get into the shelter. And if it should be shut down, we have to make sure that we're, uh, we as a community can house all those people. Otherwise, we're just making homelessness illegal in this town. Um, again, these are rumors. 
I've not heard any claim to anyone pushing on this. I haven't heard it from any of you. Um, that being said, it's something that's a concern within circles that I'm in. Um, as for the tragedies that happened there, uh, things need to be done better. What that is is unclear to me. But the idea that these deaths were inevitable, I don't think was the case. And I don't think you believe that either. I think better things could have been done. More services could have been done more effectively as well. I'm worried that a lot of bureaucracy within these camps are making it hard for these services to be, um, to be given to the homeless people of our community. Um, and so just simply, what I want is that hopefully some of that red tape can be removed. My priority is just to make sure that they get the services there, that they get the resources that they need to basically survive and hopefully get back up on their feet. And I think that's something that this community wants, that even uh, this, these, that you guys want. <laughs> um, but doing that is difficult. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of back and forth about it. So my hope is that you have the best intentions with this and you'll make the best actions forward. But I know that, that's hard to do. Anyway, thank you. Thank you. Other general public comment? Hi, my name is uh, Trong Turner, and um, I'm here today because today they put up a uh, fence um, at the homeless camp, and they told us that uh, they asked us whether or not we wanted the fence up or not, which a very pathetic. Um, attempt to do so and most of us were not even there when they asked us and um, I am mad about the uh, the fence I'm several other people are mad about the fence but I think this more shows that we're like I, I have a stronger feeling that we're like decisions are made for the homeless people and like we have like no proper representation and it's just I, I I don't know. I, I started a position to like tear down the fence because I was outraged by this fence. I got 50 signatures so far. Um, change.org uh, fence. Uh, uh, no, it's change.org voice, not a fence, but, um, and five signatures on paper. But uh, it's really sad that there is no proper representation for the homeless. And in fact, um, several uh, meetings ago, I asked one of the commissioners, uh, is there a advisory board for the homeless people? And my answer, their answer to that was no, there is not an advisory board. And it's just all third parties, Bart Nash, or like the environmental health people. And um, the homeless people have no say of what goes on. And I feel like that should change. Good evening, Madam Mayor, City Commissioners, Nancy Snow. I had prepared a statement to read and of course left it at home. Mm. So I'm gonna to try to remember as best I can. Before today, I was going to regale you with a litany of complaints. Sunday, there were several hours when no one was present at the city trailer. Uh, people were waiting for food. They did not know when anyone would be there. There was no emergency number for them to call. 
an April Fool's prank was played on one of the city workers. The city worker was told that an individual had a snake in his tent. In apparent reprisal, the city worker cut off electricity. Another city worker declined to give a resident food, a resident of the sanctioned site food. He then relented and gave her food that was cold. That was what I was going to say before today. In light of what has happened today, I have a more serious concern. And that is, at 8.30 this morning, I received notification that a fence was being placed around the city-sanctioned support site. I received several other texts and emails from very distraught residents. I shared that with a couple of people on the commission. I went out there and discovered that an individual had overdosed. She had been administered Narcan and is now hospitalized. They had no water. I took water, food, ice, and Coca-Cola out to them. I then discovered that another individual had overdosed the night before and apparently was administered Narcan, at least I'm hoping. I don't have further information on that. When I left the site at 2.10 this afternoon, there was one dose of Narcan left. I don't mean one box, I mean one dose. People from Burt Nash who are on site said they would bring a box, so did other advocates. At this point, I want to ask you one thing. Please step away from any further attempt to administer city services for the homeless people in this community. Step away from the North Lawrence shelter site. There have been three deaths already. There will likely be more if you continue. I am so, so distraught by the repeated failures, which are easily rectifiable by this commission, that I shudder to think of what might happen at the Pallet Village. Other general public comment? My name is Dr. Justin Spies, and I protested the child mask mandates around here along with the child COVID vaccine clinics the city and county supported and hosted in 2021 and 2022. Recently, the World Health Organization changed its COVID vaccination advice, moving children to low priority and thus a low risk group not needing the vaccine. It's another thing us crazy right-wing extremist conspiracy theorists were right about again. Your very own liberal mainstream media, CNN, published an article on it, and I'll read from it in the WHO statement in a minute. But the WHO says they revised the guidelines due to reconsidering the risk of severe disease and death, but this is a misdirection. It's a lie, because kids were never at risk of severe disease and death from COVID. From the beginning, the death rate of COVID was 0.003%. This is basically 0%. Nothing is ever 0%, but this is as close as you can get to being zero. And this number was even lower for children, and this was known right away from the beginning. But you all kept pushing these vaccines on children as young as six months, all of you. The 
city, the county, the health department, the school districts all partner, partnered up to push it on kids. And for what? So you grown-ass adults could protect yourselves from the scary virus? Remember when you said us unvaccinated would kill grandma? The who no longer considers that insane argument when considering if kids should get vaccinated or not. When you live in fear, this is what you get. Cowardly adults pushing children to be injected with an unproven, experimental, unnecessary, and potentially dangerous substance. You could say the science changes, but that's exactly why you need to be skeptical in the first place. Contrary to what you dipshit liberals believe, the science is never settled. <clears throat> CNN published an article called, Who Experts Revise COVID-19 Vaccine Advice Say Healthy Kids and Teens Low Risk on Wednesday, March 29, 2023. The WHO's vaccine experts have revised their global COVID-19 vaccination recommendations and healthy kids and teenagers considered low priority may not need to get a shot. The updated roadmap is designed to prioritize COVID-19 vaccines for those at greatest risk of death and severe disease. The new streamlined recommendations focus on high, medium, and low risk groups, and children are in the low the low risk group. For healthy kids 6 months to 17 years old, the group said countries should consider vaccinating based on factors such as disease burden and cost effectiveness. This is from uh, WHO's website, SAGE Updates COVID-19 Vaccination Guidelines. The roadmap newly considers the cost effectiveness of COVID-19 vaccination for those at lower risk, namely healthy children and adolescents compared to other health uh, interventions. The revised roadmap outlines three priority use groups for COVID-19 vaccination, high, medium, and low. These priority groups are principally based on risk of severe disease and death and, and consider vaccine performance, cost effectiveness, pragmatic factors, and community acceptance. The low priority group includes healthy children and adolescents aged six months to 17 years. We were right about masks. We were right about vaccines. Hope I don't start coming in here reading reports about how these vaccines have messed up children. I think that's going to start happening here pretty soon. Other public, general public comment? Hi, I'm Amy Buffman. I would like to address the 5G fiber optics that are being installed in front of everyone's houses, underground about every 15 feet. Lisa, I sent you a PubMed article titled Evidence for a Connection Between Coronavirus Disease 19 and Exposure to Radio Frequency Radiation from Wireless Communications, including 5G. It is from 2021, but the important thing I want to point out in the article is the radiation. The article highlights that people with COVID should stay away from their wireless devices. It also states, but is well known, that the first case of COVID-19 was in the Wuhan lab, lab leak. We also know the first 5G tower went up in Wuhan. Why are you installing this all around us? Have you done any studies to see the dangers? Have you even looked at any studies? People have a choice to have a microwave, even a cell phone. We didn't need all these giant towers with a bunch of expensive toxic panels. We sure as hell didn't need them by our schools. I want answers back by my email, please. Whose idea is this? Who is paying for it? What kickbacks are being given from our criminal federal government for you to slowly kill or harm your people? While I'm up here, I heard you're trying to keep Michael from entering the homeless camp. Isn't that public property? If it's city property or our property, and if it has if it's city property, it's our property, and if it hasn't done any and if he hasn't done anything wrong, 
you look like you're scared. He's going to report on a situation and make you look even worse because you haven't finished most of what you started and seem to just create more of a problem. Now you want to go off and get advice somewhere about what to do about the homeless problem. How much will that cost the taxpayers? I really would appreciate an answer to my questions about the 5G. I can't stress it enough. It's not right. I may send you some more information, all of you. Um, and sorry, I only mentioned you because you're the only email I had, but mm -hmm. I fixed that today, so thank you. Thank you. Other general public comment? My name is Joe Herrick, and I'd like to begin by quoting a second paragraph of the Declaration of Independence. And I quote, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, end quote. I'm asking all the city commissioners whether or not you believe you upheld these unalienable rights and your oaths of office. I say absolutely not. What say you? During the past three years, we have witnessed the biggest crime ever released on humanity. The so-called pandemic was nothing more than an evil plan by evil people to enrich themselves by producing fear in the population and sticking a needle in everybody's arm with an untested gene therapy shot it was never approved by the FDA. At the end of World War II, Nuremberg trib tribunals were held in order to prosecute those that were responsible for crimes against humanity. Those prosecuted came from all walks of life. Generals, the press, radio stations, and many others. Many believed they were innocent because they were just following orders. Many of those that were just following orders were prosecuted and convicted as being an accomplice to, the, to crimes against humanity. Which brings us to the, today's definition of woke, willfully overlooking known evil. Before the end, before year end, I believe the public will be witness to live videos of military tribunals that will include criminal prosecutions with appropriate jail times. Those guilty of the most egregious crimes will face the death penalty. This indeed will be the great awakening. Thank you. Any other general public comment? If not, we'll, oh, go ahead. Jennifer Adams, I live out there by the homeless site. I'm trying to figure out what's gonna happen next. You guys keep tearing things up. Everything is looking really bad out there. It's a mess. It's starting to look like Amtrak, which was what I thought nobody wanted. Not to mention this fence going in. I've been there since the start of this. 
I want to know why me and mine are being punished. We've always been in compliance with the city. We've done everything you've asked, and now we're kicked out of everything. We don't have access to food, to showers, or anything. That's not right. And something needs to start making a change that'll do some good. Instead of people dying, people under more trauma, we don't need it. And if you can't do a better job, then back out and walk away. Any other general public comment? Hi, I'm Chris Flowers, and um, just when it comes to overdoses, um, I think the city needs to decriminalize fentanyl strips, um, the, the test strips, I've said it before. Um, the, the state, I don't think, wants to get involved, so I mean, if the state's not going to get involved, the city needs to do what it can. Um, I mean, ideally, it'd be great if we could just pass out fentanyl strips so people could test their drugs for fentanyl. But I mean, it's Kansas, so that it is what it is. Um, also, I, I, I think you all, what you all need to start doing is. When you choose city staff for the homeless camp, go for the ones based on heart and not brains. I mean, you might be putting your smartest people out there. I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe they're not the smartest, but some there smart people cannot be great at, at having a great, you know, uh, at thinking with their heart. And you need employees that are going to be thinking with their heart. So. Keep that in mind. And also, I want to, with, it's April, and I think the city needs to look into making a proclamation where we proclaim April 20th as 420. Um, if Kansas ever does eventually legalize it, it'd be great if we get a leg up on it. I mean, we, we are in in position where we have a leg up already, but I mean, if we start getting getting prepared to have a 420 celebration once it's legal, I mean, I think we could get a jump on all the other cities in the state. And if, you, if you're not ready for 420, how about April 19th as Bicycle Day? Um, people like biking, so thank you. Any other general public comment from the audience? Hi. Hi. <clears throat> Hi, I'm Tiffany Kopp. I'm a resident at the campsite behind Johnny's Tavern. I am not part of the sanctioned side. I am part of the unsanctioned side. Today, I was told that I cannot have food. I cannot heat up my food. I cannot shower, and I cannot go talk to my friends. And they cannot come onto my side either. I feel like my group is being punished. We've been complying with you guys this whole entire time since we've been out there. I feel like we're being punished. Like we're, I feel like the people out there in the sanctioned side are being looked at as prisoners now. Um, there's only one entrance into the sanctioned side now, and it's not even that large. And it is a fire hazard. Say that a tent or several tents caught on fire. Something bad happened out there. A whole bunch of people are going to be rushing. People are going to be tripping. There's disabled people out there. You guys did not really think this through. I think you guys should take down the uh, fence. 
Um, I just think it was a dumb decision. I think it should be stopped. Thank you. Any other general public comment from the audience? If not, we'll go to Zoom. Alex Kerr. Oh. Oh. Wait, we got one more here, Sherry. Okay, um, just one second, Alex. Hi. Hi, I'm Andy. Um, last time I was here, it was because the city announced without any warning that in the dead of winter, it'd be closing the camp behind Johnny's and evicting all of the campers there. It had uh, even begun doing so. Uh, but after dozens and dozens of people attended a meeting here that night to denounce the action of you commissioners, we were assured in the following days it was merely an oversight that city staff unilaterally made the decision without consulting their superiors. Uh, don't worry, it was only gross incompetence from the mayor and the city manager. After three deaths at the camp, numerous other overdoses, and the fence being put up today to prevent many of the campers, including respected and recognized camp leaders, uh, from getting food or access to uh, hygienic supplies or showers, it is clear that the commission and manager are not grossly incompetent. You are horrifically cruel. You have blood on your hands. You've killed three people. And every night I pray that you won't kill more. If your responsibility for the deaths of three people have any weight on your conscience as they should, then there is only one way forward, which is stop policing the houseless camp, stop segregating it, stop depriving the campers of much needed food, showers, and other resources, stop trying to drive them out, stop making decisions without consultation of the people your decisions are affecting and are killing. Guarantee them real, sustainable housing, not your bullshit pallet village, or leave them alone and let them deal with their own problems much better than you ever have. Okay, we'll, we'll go to, oh, we got one more person here. My name's Nicole. Um, I just trying to make sure I'm keeping up with the politics on the left now, so the left is not for walls when it comes to keeping people who do not live in our country out. Murders, drug dealers who are providing fentanyl, but when it comes to people who I assume many are just down on their luck, have probably in the worst point of their life, but you want to keep them separated from the rest of society. I'm not understanding that logic. I agree uh, with the cell towers. It seems like every day I drive around, I see another one. They're going up really quickly on the highways between here and Topeka. Um, there is a lot of data out there from other countries that it is dangerous to humans, to their DNA, especially around schools for the children. Their DNA is more easily affected than that of an adult. It'd be nice if the city could look into some of that research that's already out there, European studies. Um, I think that's all I have to say. Thanks. Thank you, Nicole. Okay, we'll go to Zoom now. Alex Kerr. Hi, can you hear me? Yes. Thank you. So I'll just be upfront. I'm disappointed in the city staff, city commission, and even you, Mayor. Um, civic engagement is important to local governments, state governments, and even federal governments. I think it's crazy that the public is not being heard, nor is there any engagement on any of these items. You know, take, take um, the homeless situation. Have we been asking the homeless what they think, what they feel, what is needed? No, we have not. And I blame that 
entirely on the city staff completely. A year, almost a year, over a year, I created the Civic Engagement Commission because I believed that engagement mattered to the city of Lawrence, Kansas. I tried, you know, I probably have, I probably can get more info from community members than you, the city can, which disappoints me a lot. Uh, so I'm disappointed. I feel that the public is not being heard and they should be heard. And it's the city commission, the mayor, and city staff's problem. It is. And I'm done with it. You know, mayor, hey, in 2019, you were the only person that I ever thought as a role model in local government. Yeah, you are my role model for local government and any other type of government. It just disappoints me that nothing's getting done. No engagement. There's no such thing as engagement between the public. It's just horrifying and I'm pissed. Thank you. Kevin Elliott. Hi there. Uh, I'm Kevin Elliott. Um, there's a lot of things I get, and there's a lot of things I don't get. I would never be a city commissioner. I've been asked to run. Um, I don't think I have the balance. I don't think I would like being yelled at every single week. And so I'm not going to yell at you today. But I, I, I don't understand something. And I'm going to, it surprisingly echoes Alex. I remember listening to a speech not long ago by Commissioner Sellers. Um, to the police commission where she was quite upset that um, the city was working with people uh, on issues of people of color, but not including people of color in the conversation. You wouldn't have the human relations commission without consulting people of color, people who are queer like myself, yet you're providing services to the unhoused and you're not including people who are unhoused. You wouldn't provide services to uh, low-income families without including the perspective of low-income families. You wouldn't provide services to uh, women without including the perspective of women. Why in the world, I don't understand, are you so resistant or is city staff so resistant to creating a committee of unhoused individuals to help guide their service? It's real simple. It doesn't cause any controversy. It doesn't hurt the city. It helps the city. It releases a burden from you. Please, please, please take the right step. Thank you. Jen Wolsey. Um. Good evening. Um, I wanted to stay. Um, I wanted to just hit on a couple of points. Sherry, if you'll tell me when my time's almost up, because I tried to write it down to keep it concise. But first of all, I wanted to state um, there is a possibility to hire individuals with both brains and heart. Unfortunately, we've seen that most of them won't stick around. Um, the unhoused are not being engaged. Unfortunately, there are city staff who feel that engaging those in homelessness in decision-making is crazy or maybe even radical thinking. 
even though you will hear later in the night how the county and city strategic plan will include a direct strategy around including those that are homelessness. So they're going to talk about a strategy that they plan on doing, but possibly give no reason why they're not doing it now. Um, as a reminder, during my employment with the city, I expressed my concern pretty early on to the Housing Initiative Division leadership around the lack of training and expertise in homelessness and housing systems and response by certain HID staff who were being allowed to guide and direct the work completely for the unhoused population with, again, no experience. I have briefly mentioned it, but recognize that I have not mentioned it enough. For that, I apologize. There is an individual in the head team that has both education or has all education, experience, training, and understands all the needs that are out there. And of course, you all know her. Um, you've all seen her work. I mean, that is Leah Roslin. And I... I'm still kind of, I've been waiting to see at what point y'all would bring her into this decision-making. I look at the fact that you allow Mitch, whose expertise is Parks and Recs. You allow Cicely, whose expertise is re-entry. You allow Danny, whose expertise is grants. But you don't consider the person that is sitting right there and available and who has done this work. I wanted to talk touch a little bit on trauma-informed care. Um, I question if those individuals that I just mentioned, other than Leah, actually have any sort of trauma-informed care, because if they did, then what happened today with the erection of that fence and without any sort of consideration or speaking with or giving any sort of actual lengthy notes to the campers out there, she would have told you not to do that. I mean, and I haven't even spoken to her, but I know her well enough to know that she would have told you not to do that because that created harm. That was a trigger for trauma. And we already know this complex issue deals a lot with people who are already traumatized. Thank you. Are the public Steve Watts. Did you call me? Yes. Thank you. You know, the very recent police review board meeting had our town police department presenting what is included in the monthly use of force report. We learned that there are many different kinds of physical force used by police, and these different kinds are not included in our town's use of force report. Use of force statistics are how we as a community keep track of how often our police are compelled to physically strike and beat people to keep us all safe and secure in our quest for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which was broached on a little earlier by another speaker. But of what value is this statistic for our community when police are not keeping track of many, many instances of police use of force? If whatever happened is not going to be included in the use of force report, no statistic is kept and the event is viewed simply as no big deal. Our current use of force policy underscores the fact in reality our police civil servants are permitted to strike and beat people about the body below the head with fists, karate chops, and other open palm attacks 
as well as attacking painful pressure points on the human body and, as the policy is currently written, police are permitted and encouraged to kick and knee the human body anywhere below the head, including the groin, neck, kidneys, liver, and back, because such blows and strikes are not included in the use of force report. Nobody's watching. This reality is created by current written policy 300.5, 300.5.1, and 300.5.2. If you have not, please read the policy manual, and also please do take a look at the email traffic I provided in the meeting packet where it was essential, but I'm telling you, is essentially verified by the police department. Is our town, you know, the question I really have is, is, is our town comfortable with the reality any contact or striking of a person by our town police, which is below the head, utilizing the hands or the feet or the knees or the elbows or heck even biting the mouth. It's not included in the use of force report and it's not tracked. The earlier speakers about our homeless problem here in the community in terms of fixing it kind of underscores as we scratch the veneer of Lawrence, Kansas, and we learn what really goes on in the belly of the beast and just how kind and gentle we are with a police force that can beat you below the head and not report it in a use of force report and with a homeless camp where it sounds like it's being turned into Hi. a concentration camp. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. That's all the comments. Mary. So okay, we'll bring it back to the commission. And we'll move on. Item D, which is the consent agenda. Items on the consent agenda are considered under one motion and approved by one motion. There will be no separate discussion on these items. If discussion is desired, that item will be removed from the consent agenda and considered separately. Members of the public wishing to speak on an item that has been pulled off the agenda, the consent agenda, will be limited to three minutes for comments. Are there any commissioners that would like to pull an item off the consent agenda? Nope. Commissioner Sellers, no. Are there any members of the public in the audience here that would like to pull something off the consent agenda? Anybody on Zoom? No, Mayor. Okay, bring it back up here and ask for a motion. Move to approve the consent agenda. Second. I got a first and a second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Passes five to zero. Okay, we will move on to our work session, item F. The work session provides an opportunity for the City Commission to discuss items in greater detail. The Commission will take no binding action on items presented during this time. Work session topics are eligible for live public comment. Members of the public wishing to speak on a work session item will be limited to three minutes for comments. Our first item is a strategic plan updates for the safe and secure outcome team. Welcome. Thank you. Good 
Since we're all talking, I'll try to find an average height for the microphone. <laughs> Good evening, Mayor and Commissioners. I'm Rich Llewellyn, the Fire Chief for Lawrence Douglas County Fire Medical. I have the pleasure of speaking to you tonight about uh, the safe and secure outcome within the city's strategic plan. And with me are Kevin Joles, Division Chief of EMS, and Mackenzie Azell, our Fire Medical Analyst, and also our Accreditation Program Manager. So we're one half of the safe and secure uh, mix, if you will. Uh, we share that outcome with, with uh, Lawrence Police Department and Rich Lockhart is my, my counterpart, is the uh, co-champion. Uh, and we have 14 uh, KPIs that we have within the uh, safe and secure outcome. Uh, a lot of those are individual to each agency, uh, but some are shared. Uh, and tonight we're gonna talk about one of those shared ones, but we're gonna talk about it from the LDCFM's perspective. And that is the percent of residents who perceive Lawrence as safe or very safe. So we're gonna talk about the work that we do on uh, in that area and developing uh, resident perception. So you can see, uh, on the two survey years that I have here, uh, fiscal year 2020 and most recently fiscal year 2022, as we look at the percent of residents who feel that Lawrence is safe or very safe or perceive Lawrence is safe or very safe, uh, the, the latest number was 78%. It's down a couple percentage points from 2020 where the, the number was 80%. Our goal is 90% and, and that's uh, where we're focused on, on heading with those perceptions and we're gonna talk about some of the uh, strategies that we have for speaking to the community and getting our story across and making sure that the community knows what we do. I find a lot of times, uh, at least when I started in the fire service, the doors were closed. We tried not to talk about what we did a lot. And that's really shifted, uh, particularly in the last 10 years, in that we really want people to know what we do. And so we're going to um, talk about the ways that we're telling that story. Hello. All right, so for community communication, we've done, um, we've had community communication through fundamental documents and reports. With the recent reaccreditation process, we've updated a lot of these reports. Um, so this would be our strategic plan and our community risk assessment standards of cover. Our strategic plan coattails off of the city's strategic plan, but focuses more at a department level and identifies objectives and critical tasks for the department to work on. Our community risk assessment standards of cover looks at the risks within the community, but then also evaluates the services that the department provides. Um, on a more annual basis, we have annual reports that are published um, typically every April, and that has more of the informal, um, community-friendly data that is interesting to look at as far as us as a department and the people that make up the department and the activities that we're doing, but also re uh, response performance. And these documents can be found on the website. Thank you. So LDCFM is continuing to make strides with open communication both internally and externally. And how we're doing that is by using some so, uh, social media platforms. Here you can see a couple of our posts uh, that are using internal stakeholders. Uh, we're sharing um, some of our incident awareness um, topics there on the, in the middle. And then over on the right, we're doing education and um, community risk reduction posts, um, which help people uh, navigate the city streets um, when there's an incident happening as well as as um, uh, reducing some safety, uh, reducing sa and increasing safety measures within the community. 
Uh, PulsePoint has been an app, a mobile app, a free mobile app that you can download from your local app store on your phone. It's, um, it was implemented about 18 months ago. It gives uh, viewers um, the ability to see some incidents across the city. Um, several of the agencies in the, in the county are using it as well. Um, it, at this point in time, right now, it is giving uh, the, the viewers the uh, ability to see where motor vehicle crashes are so they can navigate away from those, as well as CPR alerts. Uh, CPR alerts are um, crucial to anyone who would need CPR and AED uh, deployed quickly. Um, so far, we've ha we have some data, some preliminary data that we just received re uh, very recently that shows that it is alerting people that may be nearby. And usually that's in about a quarter of a mile or 400 meters uh, within an, a CPR needed um, incident. And so it is, it is working well so far. Um, some of the, uh, I'll let Chief uh, Llewellyn talk a little bit more about um, the expansion of the PulsePoint app. So another aspect of PulsePoint that we're working to, to fully actualize so we can get the most value from the app is what's called an AED registry that allows people to crowdsource AED locations. And so when you do get a, a CPR nearby alert, it also tells you that there's an AED nearby. So you can either send someone or get the AED yourself. We're working with Douglas County's Emergency Communications Center. Uh, to flip a couple switches on, on their end so the conversation on uh, with the dispatcher and the caller shifts from is there a nearby AED to there's an AED on the wall in the in the building you're in. So it's going to increase awareness of where AEDs are at. Uh, one part of communicating what we do to the community is expanding the use of PulsePoint to, to add incident information that's geomass, so people don't know where it's at, but they have a, a general idea, but they can see what the department's doing. Currently, as Chief Joel's mentioned, we show car accidents, we show structure fires, and, and a couple other real specific incidents. And, and that's it. So when I go out to the community, I talk about what we're doing. I pull up the PulsePoint app and I, I show the, the public side that I have on one of my phones. Uh, and it just shows a few incidents. So it's not, it's not showing what we're doing. Uh, to, to flip that, there's a, a department on the left side of your screen uh, from Washington State that has that public information out there showing what they've done. And th these show two current calls and then um, several calls within the last four hours of the previous four hours. And PulsePoint typically shows 24 hours um, worth of, of data. So as we talk to our community about how busy we are and all of the things that we do, it, it changes from the community being able to see three or four calls on a screen to being able to see 50 to 60 calls that we went through in the last day. Uh, and, and speaking of calls, that's a, a, a segue into where we're at next, looking at our incident data and being able to communicate how busy we are to the community and, and what it is exactly that we're doing. And we have data here from 2006 through 2022, and we used 2006 because the last time we expanded a fire station or added a fire station was in 2006. So we went from approximately 8,900 calls in 2006 to over 15,000 calls in 2022 uh, with that same footprint inside Lawrence here. So we're, we're getting a lot busier. We're staying within the same footprint. It's starting to, ha starting to have some noticeable impacts on, on our ability to, to get resources out. A lot of times resources are coming from further away because the, the units in the st station that's closest are on another call already. So we do experience that quite frequently. Uh, 
The map that you see on the left side of your screen is one that we produced in 2020 when we looked at our fire station optimization. Uh, the red circles there show some gap areas that were identified. Those are areas that have concentrations of, of property in the city, uh, commercial or residential in the city, and are, are beyond four minutes of drive time from a fire station. So that's, that's where we try to keep our stations is approximately four minutes of drive time at, at the most. That's, that's the number we like to see. And it is starting to have some impact that's being noticed outside the department as well. Uh, last year we had the insurance services office here to do a re-rate. Uh, the last re-rate was in 2016. In the area of deployment where they look at where our fire stations are and our ability to get to, get to locations in a reasonable amount of time, we dropped from nine points to 6.45. We maintain our overall ISO class rating of one, which is the best you can have, but our total score went from just over 99 to just over 90, so it's starting to starting to have a noticeable impact on that score. We want to make sure we we turn that around and, and get that score back up to where it was uh, in the nine. And then the other outside entity that came in and looked recently and, and looked at our data was the Commission on Fire Accreditation International. We're an accredited agency, and that means that we submit our data and um, offer it up for outside subject matter experts to look at every so often and get an unblemished report back from them. And Mackenzie's gonna talk about what we heard. So yes, this last year we went under, um, through our four three accreditation cycle. And within that accreditation cycle, we update our guiding documents. We also do a thorough self-assessment um, of the department that goes through 250 key performance indicators. And so um, the commission has a peer team that's assigned to our department and they go through our documents and then they come on site to verify and validate everything that was put in the department in the documents um, so with that typically comes recommendations anywhere from 10 to 20 um, or 25 we received 20 two of these were tied directly into what chief Llewellyn was just talking about um, one being to identify trends and opportunities for service delivery and then the other to evaluate critical tasks and necessary personnel to meet effective response force benchmark goals to fire suppression incidents. So right now the department has a committee that is looking at deployment and the response packages. Um, so basically how many fire uh, apparatus and how many medic units are going to each incident and is that the, the right amount? Um, and we're working with the communication center to um, update that. So we'll hopefully be able to use resources more effectively. And we stand ready to answer any questions. Okay, any questions? I have one to start with. Um, your graph that shows the reports and how they've gone up over time, what's the breakout from medical calls versus fire calls? Um, we've seen a trend that has been relatively the same in all of our uh, responses, so hazmat, tech rescue, um, fire suppression, and EMS. EMS versus? Um, it's about 80% 80, 80 EMS. So 80% or 80, or, or have you seen a trend on just the fires? Is it also going up or is it, is it? It'd be nice to see that graph, it would be, at some point. Yeah, and we can provide a breakdown of what goes into this uh, at another point. Sure, thank you. Yeah. Other questions? I believe uh, Commissioner Sellers. I'm trying to find her. She, yeah, there she is. Commissioner Sellers. 
Um, and thank you for the presentation. Um, I have a couple of questions and whoever can answer. Um, on our um, data point, um, SAS1, I had a question about what does that look like disaggregated? Because it's taken as a collective, but do we... I can't remember, we're looking at that collectively, which is kind of just, I don't want to say deceptive, it's misleading, um, but is there an opportunity for us to, for future, and I guess it's more of a, well, I'll, it's a comment, but I'll ask the question, do we disaggregate that data point? Do we have disaggregated data on that particular data point? I don't believe that we do. I know that we look at satisfaction overall with, with police and satisfaction with fire service, um, and we separate that out, but I don't think that we disaggregate that. Is that from ETC, you mean? Yeah. Within this, Craig, uh, within the ETC report, um, they do have demographic and geographic data breakouts but when we pull that but when we pull it onto for this particular data point it's a collective correct do you mean police and fire commissioner is that yes. what you're asking yes so safe and secure data point one percent of residents who perceive lawrence as safe or very safe that's a that's an aggregate of 78 percent think that we're safe based on fire and public safety we don't know what that number looks like disaggregated. By disaggregated, you mean police and fire separately? Right. Yes. Um, I think so. It's something we could pull up very easily. It's it's in the the main report, and I think I think it is asked in two different sections. Okay. Just from memory, I mean, it'll it'll lead to a discussion point at, at another matter. I just the the, that, the fact that we have it as an aggregate could be misleading to some. And I don't mean that in a negative way. It's just how do we, you know, finding room for improvement if one department is carrying the weight of that number higher than another one. So that's the point I was going with that. Um, in regards to Pulse Point, you know, we had a similar presentation um, several cycles ago um, on it. Are we tracking utilization of, of, of Pulse Point? Or is that something that we're in, that you all are interested in tracking and identifying how the community is using it, if there's been an increase in community members using it? Yeah, I can answer that one. So we are currently working with Pulse Point to um, increase our usability of it and the tracking of it. However, Pulse Point, because it's on um, community members' phones, it does not keep information. Um, but it will do a snapshot in time. And so okay. we're able to pull reports, um, specifically Chief Joel's mentioned earlier about the amount of people that re that received the alert for a cardiac arrest event. Um, we're able to pull those types of reports. Um, and we can also see how many users at individual times, but it's a like snapshot. Okay. And then lastly, just as a refresher, All our city, all our city buildings have AED machines in them, correct? Or do uh, you know I can't. They do? Uh, sorry, go ahead. What? 
No, I'm just saying, do we know if they do? If uh, Currently, I can't speak to every city building. Um, ideally, we would like that to be the case. Um, uh, with some of our enhancements, our future enhancements, um, I would, uh, I don't know if this is the right time to bring it up or not, but I'll, I'll risk it. Um, I would like for the fire department to start maintaining all of the AEDs city owned as well as the county owned. Um, we're the most knowledgeable about the products. We're about most knowledgeable about the um, the machines and to be able to, we can, we have the ability to put those into the pulse point app so that we can keep track of the maintenance, the, um, the length of use. They, they do have a shelf life regardless. Um, you know, even if they're not used or not, they do, uh, they've got batteries. We would be able to track that, um, and maintain that, uh, the maintenance, the inventory, the tracking, everything that would go along with that. Now with that being the question wasn't that. And so I apologize. However, <laughs> um, I would imagine that most city buildings have them, um, how well maintained they are, that's not um, something that we are currently doing. So I, I don't have that answer, but I would imagine that most are um, probably. Now, a, a component to that is, are they accessible to the public during non-business hours? And so that would be another avenue to be able to um, correct, if not, and, and not every, that's not going to be the case in every single building. That may not be it may have to go outside and then we would have to figure out how we would house that. However, um, if there was a way to um, enhance the ability to get a hold of an AED, uh, we'd love that opportunity. Okay. Thank you. That's the, Mayor, those are all the questions I have for now. Thank you. Any other questions? Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, regarding the slide with the, uh, um, the fire department's uh, activity levels and how they've increased, I was just curious uh, regarding the other side of that staff. Um, uh, what kind of levels have you seen there? Like any sort of increase or any sort of attrition uh, over um, that period of time? Let's be there. If you want to. Um, so we are approved for um, the same amount of full-time employees. Um, we have seen an increased use of benefit time. So that would be uh, sick time, vacation time, and other um, benefits through the city employment. Um, as far as turnover goes, again, with that FTE account, we hire to fill, mm -hmm. uh, but we, we are asking for um, expansion employees to fill that gap. And that will be seen in our budget requests. Just so since my employment in late November, uh, no, uh, November 17th, we've hired 52 employees um, and that's been by attrition by mostly retirement. Um, we are we have been able to fill, which is great. The numbers across the industry have not been um, the greatest turnout in public safety. So um, you know, we've still been able to maintain great employees and hire them. And we haven't had a, an issue where we're um, not hiring to full capacity every time. Thank you. Any other questions? Maybe a question, maybe a comment. I know performance um, indicated for the percent of the cardiac arrest patients with pulse age rhythms upon arrival of the hospital. I know that's something you guys have been working on. So I'd love to see that presentation, you know, in the future and what those numbers are looking as we um, move ahead in the pulse point and, and some of the things you guys have been doing internally. Thank you. We'll be sure to include that in a future presentation. Thank you. Okay. 
there are no more questions. This is a public. Um, I, I do. Have, I do have an answer to uh, Commissioner Sellers' uh, question on perceptions of safety. It's on page twelve of the ETC report. There were um, seven questions asked in that. Uh, walking in your neighborhood during the day, overall feeling of safety in Lawrence, which I think is the one referenced here. Walking in your neighborhood after dark in city parks, riding a bicycle in Lawrence, navigating busy intersections on foot, and navigating busy intersections on a bicycle. So those are the seven questions in the ETC report that are disaggregated. Okay. Thank you, Craig. And to that point, those seven questions then feed safe and secure strategy number one, correct? Only the overall feeling of just safety the overall. in Lawrence. But it just, it's an opportunity for me to kind of talk about key performance indicators. We have hundreds, if not thousands, of performance indicators throughout our organization that we use and reference. We've elevated this group to be, you know, narrow it to 130 that we use for the strategic plan indications. So there's a lot of data underneath each of these that tells us different things and that we do respond to and make plans around. Right. And I completely understand that, but I'll yield time back for public comment and we'll share my thoughts about that during the during discussion. All right. That's it. We'll um, open it up for public discussion. You guys want to go ahead and. Mackenzie, can you stop sharing just so we can. Hmm? Brandon, can you do that? Okay. We got it. Thank you. Kurt got it. <laughs> Good evening, Madam Mayor and Commissioners. My name is Jack Dolan. I'm an engineer paramedic for LDCFM. I'm also the Vice President of Local 1596. I'm here to make public comment regarding our strategic plan, specifically regarding our response capabilities and staffing. As Chief Llewellyn, Chief Joles, and Mrs. Azell presented, we currently have areas in town that are not receiving the co coverage that our citizens deserve and expect. This is also problematic for the local membership and department personnel who want to be able to provide the best services to our citizens. Our department takes pride in the ISO ranking of one and being an accredited agency. This puts LDCFM in the top 5% or in a category of 5% of the national fire departments who have met and continue to meet these requirements and keep these titles. To reiterate Chief's points, the last time our department expanded and increased staffing levels was 2006. In 2006, as we talked about, they responded to almost 9,000 calls. Last year, it was 16,000. That increase being almost 75% workload, again, increasing no staffing. This hasn't only affected us on uh, daily calls, but it's also keeping members um, on their days off so in 2006, we had one or two instances of mandatory overtime. 10 years later in 2016, that number was right about 100 instances of mandatory overtime. Last year, it was almost 800 instances of mandatory overtime. So there is a huge increase in workload, not only on day-to-day -day calls, but just time spent here. If we want to maintain our status of being an elite fire department, fire department our members want to work for, fire department our community can rely on. We must grow, we must expand, and we must hire more firefighters. The course we are currently on is not sustainable, 
It's not attractive to prospective employees. And most of all, the course we're on is not safe and not in the best interest of the members of our community. I strongly urge the commission to fund these needs in the CIP. We are, are already behind and cannot afford to continue to push this off any longer. I ask this of you to protect our citizens and our firefighters. Thank you. Other public comment on this item? Give it to them. Oh, yes. And the reason why is because those guys are the heroes. They run into burning buildings that are about to collapse and you never hear any word about fireman safety. I've never heard that phrase before, fireman safety. I've never heard it <clears throat> used as an excuse, used as a reason why we did something wrong, used as a reason why we had to hurt somebody. I've never heard any fireman safety used. But yes, those are our true heroes. Take care of the other problems. Other public comment on this item? Anybody online on Zoom? Stephen Watts. Hi. Boy, I have to echo that last remark. I'm all for more firefighters and brother there needs some help. At the same time, I expect my union brothers to show some solidarity to the people of Lawrence and not to thugs in the department. That being said, an opportunity for service to the chief of the fire department is the establishment of a carbon monoxide distribution program citywide. It's happened all over the country for the last several years. I think there may have been one or one or two here in Lawrence. I don't really remember, but I know that there's been a strong effort to resist having one. It's just an idea. Thanks. Other public comment on Zoom? That's it. Bring it back to commission. Any discussion from commissioners? Commissioner Sellers, I think you had indicated you wanted to say something more. If there's no other, I was just going to say, I again, our strategic plan and our, and our key performance indicators and strategies are all live, you know, they're, they're moving, they're living, and we, it's important that we recognize what feeds into those. I would just say I have a concern, and this can be addressed at its next um, evolution, that if we're going to have a data point on safe and secure, and it's the perception, I do have concerns that there's an aggregate taken, and you're combining two very key, while similar, but very uniquely different departments in fire, medical, and public safety, and putting them together as an aggregate, that tends to create a, a narrative or a story that may that is not necessarily one that we don't want to tell, but it may be a narrative that we don't want to create. And so if we're wanting to know true, safe, and secure as it relates to fire and medical, then that needs to be separate than the one with public safety. So it's, it's, it's not an indictment in any way. I think sometimes, like I said, love covers all sins except aggre aggregate data. We can't tell a full story if we try to bunch a lot of things together and say, well, this is what the community thinks. 
because then we're creating a narrative that many in the community may not think that, but what we're saying is the majority of folks in the community say, oh, we link everything to be safe and that may not be the case. And we may be missing our opportunity to adjust other key performance indicators um, to make ourselves more efficient, more effective, good stewards, more diverse, more equitable, and so on and so forth. So um, I think it's just, a you know, it's a data point opportunity to have that discussion around how we aggregate things together to tell a story that we may not be telling the full story or the most accurate story. So that was my part. You know, other than that, I do appreciate um, having these outcome presentations, especially around safe and secure, because it is a very broad um, outcome piece, as we can tell by some of the survey questions. And so I'm glad that we have this and it allows us as commissioners to start thinking, how are these connecting to KPIs and how do we tell that story and our CEIP, as well as in the policies that we that we develop and steward. So again, thank you to uh, Chief Owen's team uh, for coming and presenting tonight. And I, I, I do appreciate you entertaining me as far as my data questions. Thank you. Go ahead. I was going to say thanks for the presentation. Thanks for all you're doing. Thanks for, um, you know, all the work that all the firefighters do. I'm certainly interested in in keeping our, our ISO rating and and keeping, um, you know, addressing some of the service area levels. And maybe Craig, can you kind of talk us through the process? You know, and really for those in the public, because I think I know the answer about where we might see this in the budget coming up and, and how it might be discussed? Uh, sure, a couple of places. Um, first of all, we're, we're continuing to grow our um, budget process. So um, hopefully we'll have much better interaction with the public and um, what I call handles that they'll be able to use to help uh, communicate and interact with us as we're developing the budget and as you're considering the budget. Uh, the versus kind of a, a big presentation, a big um, multi-million dollar budget and not sure what's all in it. Hopefully there'll be some places where we can have some better uh, interaction and feedback. We'll also do our, our uh, capital improvement plan budget. And that's where we're talking about some of these big picture and these um, station design things, but most of it is operating budget. Uh, so we're going to have those conversations early. They were that was alluded to station expansion was something we've talked about really, I think, the last two years. And this will give us a chance to kind of put it into um, a plan to um, to fund it or to make decisions about uh, how we would fund it. Thank you. Look forward to that discussion. Yeah. Yep. Thank you very much for your presentation. I just would like to um, point out one thing, and that is that your your draft that you showed, I would love to see it split out between medical versus fire, because when I looked at our last financial audit, um, the last 10 years, the fire calls have been pr pretty flat in the 200 to mid 200 range. It's the medical calls that have gone from like I'm looking at 2012, 12,000 on up to 16,000 in 2021. So that seems to be that's where the trend is. And maybe we can parse that data and see where what services were really needed where. Thank you. Mayor, I have a quick question for Chief Llewellyn. And Craig, you can chime in if you can. I know, I think it was with the post point presentation with uh, former Chief Fagan that we, I had brought up, um, I think it was like late fall 
the uh, legislature had the Bob Bethel Can't Care Oversight Committee had met, and there's they had a hearing with the um, with many of the county EMS uh, boards and leadership about increasing the. I want to say it was the Medicaid or the Medicare rate. I'm getting foggy because that's usually not the arm I live in. So, um, and I remember asking Chief Fagan, advocating for that and, and having that rate increase, what benefit would that be to fire and medical? And I do remember him saying that that was more of a focus for the county and not so much the city. And I pushed back on him. I pushed back on that as far as since that's a partnership we have with the county, there would be mutual benefit to the city if there's an opportunity for us to garner additional funds um, to offset costs or what that could be used for. Chief, are you familiar with that? Do you, do you remember any notes on that? Or can you speak to that? Or do I need to... Yeah, there was a, a push earlier this year for uh, increase to the uh, Medicare Medicaid reimbursement rate. Um, another, I, I'm not sure where that's sitting in, in legislature currently. <clears throat> uh, another item that uh, we're revisiting, and as a collective of public safety transport agencies, we're we're starting to push the ground emergency medical transport program again, GEMT, and that allows us to. Um, get an intergovernmental transfer uh, for the full amount of a Medicaid transport. Um, we're we're meeting on Friday in Topeka with some of our partner agencies to to work out a strategy on on uh, fully accessing that program. The the uh, enabling language is there. I believe there needs to be a state plan amendment uh, to get it in place uh, through KDHE um, in order to to get that there. Uh, there's a there's a lot of um, available funding uh, that Kansas is missing out on and, and uh, LDCFM and, and Douglas County and, and Lawrence is also missing out on. So it's uh, important for us to, to push that. We're making a, a concerted effort um, starting this year. Thank you for sharing. Cause I do remember in at least one of the hearings, several of our EMS services and the counties that border Oklahoma talked about how they struggled to compete with the counties, the Oklahoma counties that border um, because of the, with the Medicaid rate that they have, that gives them more flexibility as far as having funding available to recruit and retain through raises and things of that stand for, uh, things of that matter. So um, thank you for providing that update, but I just wanted to see where we were at um, with that, with that charge. So thank you. You're welcome. All right, if nothing else, we'll move on to our um, next item. Thank you. Item number two, receive presentation on the proposed Lawrence Douglas County Affordable Housing and Homeless Communities um, Strategic Plan. Good evening, commissioners. I'm Leah Roseland, the Affordable Housing Administrator with the City of Lawrence, and I will be uh, sharing my PowerPoint presentation, which to be honest, is the most nerve wracking part of this whole presentation for me. So uh, please give me one moment to share my screen. 
Okay, I want to make sure I am sharing the correct note. It looks good on our end, Leah. Okay, thank you, Brandon. Yeah. <laughs> okay, good evening, commissioners. It is a pleasure to have the opportunity to present the draft of the Lawrence Douglas County Housing and Homelessness Strategic Plan. Before getting started, I want to make sure to introduce and recognize my colleagues and collaborators in the development of this plan, we have Jill Jolliker, the Douglas County Admis uh, Assistant Administrator, Gabby Sprague, Douglas County Human Services Manager, and Matthew Falk, Director of Housing at Burton Ash. Um, they will be helping to present and address any questions. And we also have Danny Walters, Assistant Director of PDS, um, and the head um, to address any questions regarding emergency sheltering. I would like to express my deepest gratitude uh, for Jill's leadership in bringing this group together and pushing this critical work forward, and to everyone involved in the development of this plan who took on extra work outside of their already busy days because, like me, they care deeply about the health, equity, inclusion, and opportunities of everyone in our community to thrive. We believe that this plan brings us one step closer to realizing those values in Lawrence and Douglas County. So first I'm gonna share some very brief background about how we got here. In April, 2021, KDADS convened a housing summit that included city, county, nonprofit, and other community stakeholders to discuss um, homelessness and housing solutions throughout the county. After that summit, the stakeholders group started meeting regularly starting in July 2021 to assess community need and to begin planning for strategic solutions through a collective impact planning model. The list of stakeholder organizations is shown on the screen here. The first task of the group was to commission countywide assessments to better understand the need around supportive housing and homelessness services and supports to accomplish our goal of functional zero of homelessness. And that means where when homelessness does occur, it is both rare and brief. Those assessments were completed in the summer of 2022 and are attached to the agenda item report for further review. Based on the findings of those assessments, priority focus areas were identified and work groups were formed to begin the development of the strategic plan. Work groups are convened by two members of the steering committee that was um, <laughs> formed from the original stakeholders group and include additional community stakeholders, advocates, and subject matter experts. Our task was to use the two assessments noted above, in addition to the 2018 Lawrence housing market analysis and other local data to develop smart plus C goals rooted in evidence-based and best practices, as well as creative solutions to develop a five-year strategic plan with strategies that will help us to achieve our goal of functional zero. So our overall goal of the group was to develop a plan that addresses both homelessness services and affordable housing solutions so that we are going upstream with the solution to homelessness, which 
includes affordable housing, as well as meeting the downstream needs of services for community members already experiencing homelessness so that they can have their basic needs met, including shelter and food, and be rehoused as quickly and with as much dignity and respect as possible. Our overall objective with the plan is to create a system that achieves functional zero through policy system and environmental changes, resulting in Douglas County residents having access to the fundamental right of safe, accessible, attainable, and affordable housing, and in which homelessness is a rare and brief occurrence. Although these issues impact our whole community, certain populations do experience homelessness, disparities in homelessness and access to affordable housing. Therefore, the plan focuses on the following low-income populations that experience disparities in these areas, with the understanding that solutions serving those with the greatest need that are the most impacted will ultimately increase positive outcomes for us all and you can review the list of our priority populations on the screen. Our plan is rooted in equity, not only in how we're centering prioritized populations, but also through the implementation of an inclusive systems approach to planning. Therefore, trauma-informed um, strategies that meet the holistic needs of community members were prioritized. So what a trauma-informed approach means is that it recognizes the impact of poverty, houselessness, and housing insecurity as conditions that cause ongoing iterative trauma to those community members experiencing those conditions. And a trauma-informed approach deliberately resists re-traumatization in the policies, procedures, and treatment of those individuals. We share commitment to engage and empower individuals with lived experience as key experts in helping us achieve our solutions. Equity is utilized as a lens when also when analyzing land development codes and city and county land use regulations. Land development codes are not without bias and have historically been used to institutionalize racism and racial segregation and prioritize white middle class households. Updating our code to reflect equity, inclusivity, and the diverse types of households and families throughout our community is critical to meeting our goal of housing for all. So here are the five priority focus areas included in the plan, which will be discussed in more detail um, a little bit later in this presentation. These areas were selected as priorities based on the data from the three community assessments I mentioned earlier. This plan addresses all points along the housing continuum and includes strategies for both policy and programmatic solutions. I just want to give a reminder that this chart um, represents community asset needs for preventing and reducing homelessness and housing insecurity, rather than describing a linear process of systems that individuals or households will move through. Every individual and household will have different needs and fall at a different point along this continuum. We just can't state enough <laughs> that housing that is affordable for residents, both 
big A and little A, subsidized housing and market rate um, housing that's affordable is really the ultimate solution to homelessness. If we're doing a good job with the more upstream solution of creating more affordable housing, over time, we should be reducing the need for community investments for the downstream solutions, such as sanctuary camping and emergency shelter. Our plan balances both the upstream and downstream needs so that we are meeting the immediate needs of our community members experiencing houselessness, while at the same time building solutions that will ultimately end chronic homelessness in our county. Um, so before going into the um, focus area goals, I want to briefly go over the assessment data that supports our priorities. So um, our first priority focus area is equity and inclusion. The 2022 Douglas County Homelessness Needs Assessment noted um, both racial and gender disparities in homelessness. As you can see, um, the Black or African American uh, community is represented at almost five times the rate in our homelessness population. Native and Indigenous um, community members see an overrepresentation among those experiencing homelessness in the HMIS data, and gender disparities also exist. Um, in our uh, in our city, 51% of those experiencing homelessness are female, which um, is greater than 39% federal average and 37% of our state. Um, so there's something going on there. The assessment also indicates a need to engage individuals with lived experience, just as community members tonight were speaking about. And to engage them, not only just to share their trauma so that we can gain support from community leaders for needed resources, but as experts and equals at the table in developing impactful solutions for themselves and our community. In terms of the assessment showing need for affordable housing, it demonstrated that more affordable housing options are needed. There's just not enough affordable housing for everybody in our community that needs it. You all know this. Um, we also have a deficit of population-specific housing options. Um, so in addition to market-rate affordable housing, we need housing to meet the needs of specific populations, many of whom are experiencing great disparities, as noted um, earlier. Um, and it also noted that there's a poor perception of voucher holders, which um, is serving as a barrier to housing access. The recent ordinance changed that includes immigration and source of income and voucher status as protected classes and housing discrimination is an excellent example of a policy change that we expect will greatly increase affordable housing options for all community members. In terms of supportive housing, the assessments also demonstrated that um, more supportive housing options are needed. There are few permanent supportive housing units in Douglas County, um, which is really necessary to address the needs of individuals who experience chronic homelessness. In the county, there's a need for 381 total units of supportive housing. 356 of those units are needs needed to meet um, individual households or households with adults only, and 25 are needed to meet the needs of families. In terms of systems, the assessment notes that a complete picture of the population experiencing homelessness is needed. The report notes that the Homeless Management Information System, also known as HMIS, 
is adequate to identify those with frequent interactions of the homeless response system, but still it fails to identify individuals who do not meet the strict HUD federal definition of homelessness, which includes many families. So um, an incomplete picture of who is experiencing homelessness uh, in our county is a barrier to implementing effective interventions. More on systems, Continu the assessments note that continued and increased collaboration among providers is needed. A consistent universal way of providers coming together to conduct coordinated entry and manage the by name list is necessary. All providers must communicate and collaborate to discuss the entirety of everyone in our need. Siloed solutions do not create lasting community impact. And in terms of emergency shelter, um, the assessment notes that county and city funded efforts, including continued funding of emergency shelter is needed for both LCS and emergency solutions. Um, but the second point is important from a report Home Together, the federal strategic plan to prevent and end homelessness notes that when housing costs are more affordable and housing opportunities are more readily available, there is a lower likelihood of housing households becoming homeless and households who do become homeless can exit homelessness more quickly and with greater likelihood of sustaining that housing long term. The second point is important because although we do need to meet emergency immediate needs for a shelter, shelter is not a home and it does not create the stabilizing conditions of housing that are shown to increase all other life outcomes. Um, so at this point, I'm going to go into the um, actual um, priority focus area objectives of the plan. I'm going to do a very high level overview of the objectives and the strategies are included in the draft plan that's attached to the agenda item report. Um, so I am going to cover the first two and then hand it over to my partner in crime, Jill. <laughs> um, so the first one is equity and inclusion. So our objectives um, for equity and inclusion are to by 2024, operationalized goals to inform all areas of the strategic plan as it re relates to equity and inclusion. We'll have communi communications, education, event, and resource planning for the community. And we'll have those with lived experience serving as um, paid advisors for all areas of our strategic plan. And by 2025, we'll have data collection and performance indicators to measure our impact as it relates to equity and inclusion. Um, by 2026, for equity and inclusion focus area, we will have um, an equity-centered decision-making model to inform policies, including funds, allocations, processes, and procedures and practices, policies and projects identified to integrate with existing and future projects. And by 2027, the goal is to have organizational assessments and supplemental training for local agencies and local government. Um, if it's okay with um, the commission, I'd like to move through the whole presentation and then get questions about each focus area at the end, if that's okay. Okay, thank yep, you. That'll be fine. Thank you, Mayor. In terms of our um, affordable housing focus area objectives, 
Um, we, we do believe that they are challenging, but also quite achievable with community and leadership support. So our goal is that by 2028, we will increase supply of affordable rental housing for households at 30 to 60% of AMI by 1500 new units. Um, and at least a third of those will be two to three bedrooms to accommodate the needs for families. And you can see on the pie graph, the, um, the income targeting for those rental units. By 2028, for home ownership, we want to increase the affordable home ownership um, supply uh, for homeowners at 30 to 80% of AMI by 400 new units. Um, we are targeting half of all those new units to be accessible for low-income seniors and people with disabilities, and at least a quarter of those to be four to five bedrooms to accommodate the need for growing families. Oh, well, <laughs> it looks like my other affordable housing slide has disappeared. <laughs> so um, I am going to try and find that and come back after um, we get through the other priority focus areas. Um, if Jill is available, I'm going to pass it over to her to cover the next few slides on supportive housing and systems. Available yeah, thanks, Leah. I'm sorry. No, um, let me know when to switch slides. Oh, go ahead. Um, good evening, commissioners. I'm sorry, I can't be on camera. I'm juggling a couple family commitments tonight that came up unexpectedly, but I'm happy to be with you all today and um, talk about our goals um, in this uh, this focus area, which is supportive housing. Um, so by 2028, um, we our intention is to uh, develop a um, I think, well, this one, Leah, I think is your, is your affordable housing slide. Oh my God. These ones right here. <laughs> All good. Right. It just says supportive. I'm like reading my notes talking about, thank you. And I apologize. For it. That's all good. Okay, so it says supportive housing, but really this should be affordable housing. So um, we have a couple developmental goals that, was, that relates to affordable housing. So by 2028, we want to develop a 10-year affordable housing strategic plan so that we are planning ahead and meeting affordable housing needs, which enables us to be more smart and strategic, and a plan for affordable housing that meets multiple city and community goals. For example, building affordable housing across the community and scattered sites, affordable housing near transit, food access, healthcare, and other services, parks and green space, et cetera. And then the final goal related to affordable housing is um, to create system changes that realign power imbalances, preventing access to or development of affordable housing. Um, so to expand on this just a bit, again, um, a value in this plan is that housing is a fundamental human right. But unfortunately, new affordable or supportive housing developments have been prevented from moving forward or stopped from being developed in certain areas of town when neighbors mobilize in opposition. Opposition groups have historically held a lot of power in the ultimate decisions of community leaders, and these groups are not typically representative of the whole community or even neighborhood. Rather, they are typically predominantly white homeowners with more financial and social capital than the county at large. 
and definitely not typical or representative of the community members desperately needing safe, affordable housing. And so therefore an upstream strategy for increasing affordable housing is realigning these historical power imbalances so that all voices are at the table and all voices matter equitably. And with that, we really will go to supportive housing. <laughs> Back to you, Jill. Yeah, sorry. Thanks, Leah. Um, all right. Um, so um, the slide that you have on here, I realize it is um, um, some of the, the numbers might not be as big as um, would be ideal, um, but this gives you a snapshot of what those supportive housing goals are that we have that are included in the plan. Um, so we have a goal to, by 2027, um, develop uh 30% of the units that we're of the, the units that we're going to develop for supportive housing are going to be um, for our chronically single population. A smaller portion of that number, um, and I apologize, I don't have my notes here in front of me, is um, going to be for I be uh, for chronically homeless single family, or chronically homeless families. Um, and then that very large 55 um uh, 55 plus population um, that's just over 50% of our supportive housing needs is um, for our um, near elderly community members and elderly 55 plus um, significant need there. And then 20%, um, just over 20% is for our justice involved um, community members. Those folks with a criminal history are that are exiting the criminal justice system. Next slide. Um, we also identified, um, well, significant investments are going to be made in um, permanent supportive housing. There is a need for transitional housing as well. Um, one of the success stories in the community um, um, over the last couple of years has been um, transitions, the Burt Nash Community Mental Health Center's um, transitional living facility. Um, it's been incredibly successful. The one downfall is that it's always full. Um, and we need more of it because um, there's a lot of there's a good amount of folks that need to have those transition services that Burt Nash can provide, but also um, providers like um, DECA, um, whom we know are developing these kind of services um, or have these kind of services available to, in a transitional um, living um, setting and want to develop more in the case of DECA and Burt Nash. Um, and then we are looking at the population of folks that are, sir, are the homeless child welfare involved families. We know there's significant um, opportunities with that um, population of folks that was identified in the Corporation for Supportive Housing Needs Assessment, as well as the um, KU Needs Assessment. Next slide. Systems. Um, so Leah talked about the um, hit um, kind of like some of the high points of um, the system needs in the um, supportive housing, uh, excuse me, in the HMI, as it relates to the HMIS system um, and that was identified in the needs assessment. And uh, what we have here is um, a really, a really easy low hanging fruit um, initial objective. And that's by 2024 to have a community dashboard to provide real time homelessness and housing service data. So really having a sense of what services are available in real time, what services, um, what, how many beds are available so we can um, try to in real time coordinate care for folks. And then by 2025, um, our, our first objective there is that we 
um, have HMIS accept accessible for all homeless targeted programs and housing services review, input data, and performance evaluation. This one is really, really important because historically we have, and even today, HMIS is not accessible to all of the providers of um, um, that are working with our homeless population. And that's for um, a variety of reasons, but one of the biggest ones is just the capacity um, within the balance of state COC um, to allow to provide licenses um, and the level of support that's needed to maintain those licenses. But there's also just a some some culture and some practice changes that need to be in place to make sure we're building value for why having this data in our system is important. Um, and then we have some objectives to develop some performance indicators um, and um, that are supportive of our strategic plan and are consistent with our Built for Zero initiative that we've been engaged in for three years now. Uh, and then, you know, I talked previously uh, or a couple minute, a minute ago about, um, you know, communicating the value of having quality data and making sure that we have strong data and data infrastructure um, and appreciation for that data in a privacy protected way to support clients um, and have a community engagement and education strategy around that. Next slide. Emergency shelter. Um, this one I like to say is the least baked of our, uh, of our, fo of our focus areas. Um, but this one, I think we can say that there's a lot of um, really, really important um, developments and transition that's coming, going on in this space that, um, is why it's a little half-baked, but um, I think that we, the history of the investments that we've made in emergency sheltering in this community um, bode well for us. And the partnerships that are in place between the city and the county and all of our emergency um, providers in the continuum of care, um, there's a lot of positive signs um, looking forward. So um, again, it's half-baked, but we've got a lot of work um, underway to develop this um, area even more. But what we have here is just a sense of what our, our goals are um, for how many um, population-specific emergency shelter, low-barrier, non-congregate beds we think we need to set our sights on um, for the five-year period of this plan. So we're looking at um, a little over having 30 dedicated beds for single females, 30 dedicated beds for single males, um, 15 beds for youth um, transitioning out of foster care, um, uh, 15 um, beds that are dedicated to domestic violence, um, trafficking, um, fleeing, um, stalking, fleeing any of those circumstances. Um, we're looking at 10 medical respite beds. So folks that are houseless, that have recently had a, um, a surgery or a medical procedure that need just need a little time to heal, um, perhaps um, need hospice care. Um, that's a real situation that's played out in this community in the last year that we need to be thinking of um, in our continuum. Um, looking at the need for families with children um, under 18, a significant need there today. And, um, and I already spoke, um, spoke about the number of folks, uh, the number um, that we've initially identified for single males. Um, this is a number that we've got a lot more work to do in terms of identifying what's the right number. I don't think we, we envision growing the number of emergency shelter capacity um, any more than this in, in that five-year window period because the hope is that we've made so much investment upstream in the continuum that with dedicated services and dedicated beds for these population-specific um, categories, we're making the impact we want to make. 
and with that, uh, I think, what, oh yes, our next, our next few um, objectives are that, um, I apologize, my dog's crazy um, for the barking. Um, by 2024, that we will have a community severe weather emergency shelter plan. Um, this is a really easy one and one that I just wanna give a shout out to the city of Lawrence on um, because you all have been doing this. Um, you've, for the last two years, um, stood up an emer a winter emergency shelter. So we think that we just need to embrace that leadership and document that as a plan, um, work with our emergency management department and make sure it's flexible for um, all, all severe weather, but in particular thinking of that emergency shelter um, leadership that the city's ha had in this space. And then um, we want to establish three lead agency community access points um, to access housing, um, different resources, but largely just to be able to connect to that continuum of care. And then by 2026, we want to have a five-member multidisciplinary street outreach team serving unsheltered homeless individuals, including large encampments. Um, we don't have a kind of a boundary-spanning street outreach group of folks um, at, this, at this point in the community, but we need that. And then by 2027, increase the community outreach day center facilities that we have available for folks that are experiencing houselessness um, by two to three um, is what we're thinking at this point. Um, so obviously we have a great resource in the DARE Center, but there's more that's needed um, to connect folks to care and just basic di dignity, hygiene, mail, and getting you know connections to coordinated entry and other housing um, and recovery services. I think that's my last slide. Thank you, friend. Yeah, and I'm here for questions, even though my camera's off. Thank you, Jill. Anything else, Leah? Yeah, just a couple more slides to wrap up. So our next steps are to engage the community, get um, their feedback on the plan. So we have a virtual community um, session planned on April 20th and a couple of in-person community sessions planned. You can see the dates there. We would encourage any interested in community members to come get involved and give their feedback. And we are in the process of scheduling an, an additional virtual session with the Lawrence Association of Neighborhoods. In June, we will be making changes to the plan based on community and commission feedback and working on finalizing the plan. And then we'll be back to you and the county commission to get approval. And then we'll start uh, full force implementation in July. Um, if anybody is interested in um, learning more, getting involved with any of the work groups, here are the work group contacts. So much gratitude to the work group conveners. Um, you are welcome to reach out to me and I'm happy to provide contact information or any additional information that I am able. And that is it. Thank you so much for your time and we look forward to discussion. Thank you, Leah. So we'll start with commissioner questions. Uh, yeah, I just had a quick one. I, I noticed that on the emergency shelter, you are working youth, uh, but I didn't know if there was a place for that in the national Commissioner Littlejohn, I think it's safe to say that there is, or there will be. Um, it It's a squishy area. You know, the county is working with organizations like O'Connell Youth Branch, um, that which the county has, oh gosh, I'm sorry, an existing partnership with, um, funding agreement that we're still trying to sort that out. Um, so we just, we need to see the study it more and engage with those partners more. Okay. 
Okay. Yeah, I was just I was just curious. So thank you for that. Other questions? Question on HMIS. You had mentioned, I know that's something we've been working on, but you mentioned something about the licenses. I guess I'd not heard that struggle before, Jill. What's to do with you know, I'm actually um my my partner, um our partner, everybody's friend, Matthew Falk, did a really nice job answering this question and kind of like layered it with some history at last week's session. If, if is Matthew in the room or is he in the panel by chance? I'm here. I'm on I'm on Zoom. I can I can speak. Thank you, friend. Thank you, Jill. Thank you, friend. Um it is it is that kind of a dynamic situation. I, I serve on um, the continuum of care steering committee, which is basically their board and some of the work groups that in part deal with this. Um, there are concerns or there are one, there are capacity issues in respect to technical assistance. So for example, when you add a new program that isn't a traditionally COC funded or HUD funded program that requires HMIS usage, that requires their needs. That requires capacity to build a new program within the system. When you start bringing on large numbers of new agencies that don't already have uh, a cookie cutter program that that uh, coincides with the HUD funding stream, you need staffing capacity to manage that data system to create those programs. Um, and then you need a system to extend licenses and licensing usage to all those new agencies. Uh, there's also concerns that involve data quality. The agencies who receive HUD funding are held to a certain data quality standard. Part of the capacity to maintain accountability involves their ranking in their annual applications for funding, and data quality is a part of that process. There's less capacity to maintain accountability for data quality agencies who aren't HUD funded. And there's some concern about the data quality that would uh, be provided with agencies who don't fall within the scope of the continuum of care and those traditional funding streams. I think those are things that we can definitely overcome. I can tell you there are conversations that are happening with the leadership at COC. There are many of us who are advocating for this. Um, an example is, for example, the, the city-funded homeless outreach team is not a HUD-funded entity, so they cannot programmatically access the HMIS system to use it for their own data um, serve their own data you know needs. So I want it. <laughs> so that will help me streamline our documentation processes. Right now, we have to document in you know, four different systems to to manage our data. So, uh, but I think those are legitimate concerns. Um, it's just a matter of us working processes out to, to address them. And there will be some funding needs on behalf of the administrative agency to hire staff who have the capacity to manage onboarding significant numbers of new programs. That, that will be the primary issue, I think, that drives this is funding to, to support staff to, to, do the, to do the work. <clears throat> so I guess a related question then, with HMIS, you know, I think the goal was 2026 on that, but the dashboard was something for that data, if it's not HMIS, is that just more cooperation among our groups? Yes, cooperation amongst the groups. That's how we hope to get there, but we might get there sooner. Yeah. Um, if, if I might, I would also like to back up and um, answer 
Commissioner Will John's question about transitional age youth homes. Um, there are other agencies who are looking at that. I know we at Burt Nash are, are kind of thinking about what it might mean to expand our transition, transitional housing services to create a home for transition age youth. Um, I know that other agencies in the community are thinking about that as well. Um, that is a little bit forward looking for us um, compared to where we are now. We have a lot of work to do on initiatives that we have underway now, but I, it is on the radar. And, and I do think as we as we continue to to develop the strategic plan, it is a living document. You will see those types of things being added. <laughs> Thank you, Matthew. Appreciate it. Last question for me, Jill. The other day at the county commission, you had presented, um, and I think this county commission approved a, a new contract with. Um, I just the statewide homeless coalition and the COC. Can you just mention that briefly and how that um, fits into what we're working on here? Yeah, I'm happy to do that. Um, so yeah, the the county starting last year, we started funding a full time regional coordinator, um, which has been fulfilled on a contractual basis with um, between the county and David Tucker, um, and. That was largely because the, the continuum of care that was not in great shape organizationally um, a little over a year ago, but it's very well, well run organization now and all is going very well from an organizational perspective. So we're at the point now where we're very supportive of having a contract with the Kansas Statewide Homeless Coalition, which is the collaborative applicant for the balance of state. They're the operating infrastructure organization. Um, and they're doing a fantastic job and they um, having the support of having the regional coordinator position nested within that organization is what makes sense at this point. And um, so they'll be doing the basics of being regional coordinator and they'll be doing a lot more helping us facilitate the strategic plan and meet the goals that are in the systems area of the focus group of, of the strategic plan. Thank you for that. And that position is available to all the stakeholders in the region. So it's a, the county's funding it, but we're intended that is intended to be a resource to the whole community and the system. Yeah. Other questions? Believe Commissioner Sellers. Commissioner Sellers. Thank you, Mayor. I have a couple of questions. Um, and it could be for all is in regards to the HMIS and with the discussions around that. I know I've asked this question several times and I don't feel like I've received a satisfied answer, um, but we're part of the balance of state continuum. We have an opportunity to have our own continuum of care, similar to where like Subject County, Johnson County, so on and so forth. Is there, I would like to hear you all's rationale for why we wouldn't take this opportunity to look at it. Um, at having our own continuum of care and not being part of the balance of state COC. Well, I, I think you know the history. I, everything I've observed is that we would struggle to meet the operate the operational needs of having our own COC. Um, HUD, quite frankly, barely. I, I'm the, I happen to be the treasurer of the Kansas Statewide Homeless Coalition. Um, so I wear a couple hats in this space. So I, I, I see how much money comes just to support the balance of state. Um, and so I, I don't think we'd have the operating infrastructure that we would need to, from a funding perspective from HUD. Um, so that's that's the perspective there. Um, I know we used to have one before. Lawrence used to have its own, um, was used to be its own COC and that changed a number of years ago. 
but I also understand that, you know, in general, HUD, HUD is not in support of creating new COCs. They're, that it would be very challenging for us to advocate for being our own COC. So from the, I know, Jill, you had spoken in regards to having regional support. Are we doing this work regionally? And if so, who are who are the regional partners? Uh, the regional partners are the folks that you would think of, Commissioner Sellers, that are doing this kind of work. Um, so Burt Nash, obviously, is a lead one. Um, uh, um, homeless Outreach Team, Lawrence Community Shelter, Family Promise, um, your Homeless Initiatives Division. Um, uh, those are all the folks that, yeah. So it's mostly regional partners within the county. Correct. Okay. Um, with okay, so I'm going to bounce around a little bit. Um, I know Commissioner Willjohn spoke to youth. I want to talk about it from the perspective of youth and families, um, those who are experiencing, who are unhoused or couch surfing or doubling up. Are there current? Are there currently any strategies between partners, such as Family Promise and the school district, to identify those numbers um, as it relates to McKinney-Vento's definition of, of, of homelessness? Yeah, those were identified. I know that that's a data set that the Corporation for Supportive Housing and um, KU utilized uh, McKinney-Vento data in the needs of the two needs assessments. Um, I know that there's um, everything I know anecdotally um, from Dana Ortiz and um, folks at the school district is that there's a lot of collaboration already. Um, that doesn't mean that we don't need to dig in and better understand that and where there's opportunities for improvement though. Okay. Um, it was mentioned that there were other agencies that don't have access to the HMIS, so they have their own data system. Is there opportunity within the other groups that have the separate data systems to consolidate their data system so that we at least have the two, if there's no opportunity to have like an API that can integrate those together. Is there opportunity to take those four and consolidate, to consolidate them into one? There, there, there might be, but you know, one, one side project I've been working on is to have a, a data sharing agreement between the, right. the HMIS system and my resource connection, which has been a project of mine with the county um, that care coordination shared data platform. If we can have HMIS data, then we're gonna be, firing on all cylinders um, and fulfilling a lot of the best practices that um, uh, some initiatives that the county has been engaged in the last year, National Association of Counties Familiar Faces Initiative. They've been encouraging us to use that resource that we have developed in My Resource Connection and add HMIS as another layer to have just more data to coordinate. Okay, definitely wanted to talk about the shared data agreement. Um, so thank you for bringing that up. In regards to other part of youth, as it relates to youth aging out of foster care, um, you know, when we were discussing in December use of our ARPA dollars, we did have an agency come before us, Homeworks USA, who is working to build housing um, for youth aging out of foster care, um, where I feel like we missed the opportunity to be nuanced in our thought and in our funding was recognizing how foster youth, while its location was in a different county, its impact was regional and that 
the idea of saying that we will create housing for youth aging out of foster care is almost to say that we will build it and that they their only choice is to stay here if not to give them choice. So I just didn't know if they're within the plan. I think this is more of a comments slash question, but um, to think, to truly think regionally about how we may have partners that can help elevate this work. Um, it's more of a thought. I'll pause that because that, that gets into the discussion. I don't want to, I've, I've, I've deemed commissioners for discussing during questions, so I'm not going to do that. Uh, my last one is more for Leah. Uh, for 2028, you said you wanted to create a uh, system within the, oh, where is that? Sorry. <laughs> do, 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 do. Sorry. I'm down to only one screen tonight, so I got to. So slide 208, where it says create a system of change that uh, realigns power and balances and prevents access. So within that piece, are you thinking um, about addressing like state and federal policies? Is that something that this plan will speak to? And I guess Lee, you can speak to it or even Jill can speak to it as well. Is there space to think about how state policies and how federal policies can impact this work, or at least is creating a value gap where if removed, it could benefit this work. So are you looking at addressing policies and, and, and laws in regards to moving this work ahead? This is Leah Roslin, a portable housing administrator. And I would also um, ask my co-convener, Gabby Sprague with the county to hop on if she has anything to add. Um, Commissioner Sellers, this plan uh, um, is only addressing strategies related to local policy, um, but uh, state uh, state policy is something that our group follows and um, has offered public comment and um, where it's relevant. And I think that that's something that we absolutely could benefit from digging deeper into. Um, Gabby, do you have anything additional to add? <laughs> Yeah, I have something to add. Um, hi, Commissioner Sellers, Gabby Sprague, the Housing and Human Services Program Manager for Douglas County. Um, I do want to note that, yeah, while much of this plan we focused on things that are not preempted by the state, I do know of a project at um, Lawrence Douglas County Public Health, a legal epidemiology project that they're looking at preempt some things that are preempted and um, are looking to do a study about that. And I also know that this is probably, this plan is probably going to be a part of the community health plan that they put together on a five-year basis. Um, so there will likely be uh, some, um, some movement in that direction, or at least an acknowledgement of uh, those preemption laws and how they affect the work that we're trying to do uh, in the future. I think a benefit of this plan is that although we might um, vote on it or, or you all might vote on it, there's still room for improvement and it's a living document. Um, so if we have find things along the way that we're not focusing on, um, either from y'all's feedback or from the communities, we can definitely add that in the future. Yeah, thank you. I, I appreciate that context. This is Matthew Falk, Director of Housing with Burt Nash. Um, I can add a little bit to that as well. There's been talk at the COC level and with the uh, Kansas Statewide Homeless Coalition in the wake of state legislative processes, for example, House Bill 2430, which uh, would have, for all intents and 
purposes prompted local regions to enforce camping ordinances against homelessness. Um, they're looking at what it would mean to develop strategy, um, at least on the state level, that would engage policymakers in the policymaking process. So there is discussion about that type of activity on, in different circles that are more widely reaching than Douglas County. Um, but I do think it's also worth definitely talking about in respect to our local strategy and aligning with those those other efforts. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you, everyone, for the, for entertaining those questions. Mayor, I have no questions, additional questions at this time. Thank you. I'll go, I'll go ahead and start with one real quick. Um, Jill, you had talked about the need for supportive housing, both from the permanent supportive housing side as well as a transitional housing. And you'd indicated that 100, we need 102 by 2028, or we're working on 102 for supportive housing, and then 35 for transitional housing by 2028. So we have provided some level of funding um, for uh, about 680 units the city has that should go be built within the next three to five years. Can Does anybody know if those 680, that would cover the supportive housing needs as well as the tra tra um, transitional housing needs? Anybody? I'll just please. I'll jump in here. I guess. Are you asking the ones we funded through Alpa and through? Yeah, through 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 the the city where the city has provided some level of funding, either yeah. partially. I mean, someone else can jump in here. I'd say there's a couple different levels. I mean, we have put some money towards Fort Nash and a supportive housing. I think those would be the only supportive housing that we put some money towards. You know, certainly some of it is transitional. Lots of it's just affordable. Um, and then some of it we don't know exactly yet because tends to homeowners and Habitat haven't built it all out, but maybe Leo or someone can jump in. But yeah, I, I think supportive is an area that we need a lot more work on going forward. I assume there was some, but I just wanted to know if anybody's tracking that or if they know whether or not any of that funding that the city's providing over the next three to five years, if that includes supportive housing, permanent supportive housing or tra transitional. Leah or Matthew, well, Matthew you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we have a project underway to build 24 units of permanent supportive housing, which does include you know, ARPA funding from the city that that's what we are, we will be utilizing those dollars to help support the realization of that project. Uh, Matthew, can you, oh, sorry, Leah, go ahead. I'm, I, I'm, I hate to interrupt. Go ahead. No, no, it, um, I was going to discuss another project. Yeah. Go ahead, um, I, I was just going to note the only other um, supportive housing that the city funded through our funds is the transitional supportive housing that DECA is developing. And, that and how many are those? How many are those? How many units are those? Oh, gosh, I'm, I apologize. I don't have those numbers in front of me, but I can look real quick. Um, and it looks like Danny might have some additional um, programs to discuss while I'm looking for them. Good evening. I just wanted to uh, throw out a reminder that we do have the home ARP funding that we recently submitted to HUD. Um, that one is one that we'll likely be looking at putting out an RFP for. So um, our hope was to be able to align with the work that that we're doing here with the strategic plan and be able to incorporate some of those some of those gaps in in that type of housing that we're seeing. 
So I just wanted to to add that 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 one I think it's one point three is is out there and and available for projects. Okay, thank you. Can I ask a question? Uh, so isn't that um, also, it isn't just the hard asset, it's also the staffing and supporting mm -hmm. of those that's kind of unusual versus affordable housing. So you might talk about that a little bit too. That's a hurdle we also have to address. Right. Right. I, I can talk about that. Um, so yes, that is a big hurdle, uh, specifically for supportive housing that is serving populations who would not otherwise be receiving Medicaid funded services through a Medicaid uh, licensed provider to provide supportive services. So for example, an agency like Burt Nash, who are serving Medicaid clients who qualify for our services, we can support and have no problem supporting the staff that would go along with our supportive housing projects. So in essence, we only need the bricks and mortar dollars to get the building up and going. However, other agencies and other populations who don't fit within that you know, defined group, yes, that is a major challenge with uh, maintaining permanent supportive housing is how do you maintain the staff and pay for the services. I think another step that we need to do uh, with this pro with this strategic plan is to really look at the financial component of the plan and put the, the financial numbers together, what it would take, where the gaps are. I say that because as we look to build projects in, in a market in which the going rate for a unit is above $200,000 per unit, you know, that's gonna take a large amount of funding to both support the projects in the bricks and mortar field and in respect to the supportive services staff that go along with that. It's gonna take a huge investment. Thank you, Matthew. To kind of follow up on that with a follow-up question, are there in, I might be kind of in the same vein of what Commissioner Sellers said in terms of regional um, support or regional examples. Are there any regional examples in terms of that sustainability of staff or um, that we can lean on or that you know of? Outside the Medicaid fund, Medicaid operating agencies, um, if you look across the country, permanent supportive housing is dependent upon grant funding, which typically comes through HUD, either COC funding, ESG funding, uh, or other targeted funding. And so there, the problem is, is that there's no, within the private market, there's no way of generating revenue to provide services to households who have no income or who have no insurance payer source. And typical insurance, private market insurance, and even Medicare do not pay for community-based supportive services. So there is then to my knowledge, and I'm not, you know, an infinitely knowledgeable person, but to my knowledge, there is no sustainable financial model for supportive services that don't fall within Medicaid funding. Okay. It's relying on grant money and local uh, regions just saying, we're gonna pay for this. Okay, thank you, Matthew. But um, we got, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, obviously, we're going to have some uh, community um, public sessions on this coming up. Leah, maybe, or Jill, I don't know who wants to answer this. One, what are you looking for from those? Um, and I know maybe more specifically, the emergency shelter part of the plan is probably, I think Jill said, the least baked or whatever, has the most work. What are we looking for from 
the community to help fill those in? And, and what do you think will um, you would bring back to us on, in general, as as relates to changes, but in particular as to the emergency sheltering part? This is Lee Rose on Affordable Housing Administrator. I can speak to the goals of the community engagement forums in general, and then uh, perhaps Jill or Danny, um, somebody working on the emergency shelter side, um, can address that component. But we really genuinely want to engage the community on the issue and get their feedback, um, have honest conversations about the challenges that our community is experiencing, um, and um, have discussions in small groups so that we can truly hear the voices of our community members, get their feedback on how we've done so far, what the needs are, how they think, um, what they think of our strategies and take their recommendations for strategies that we might not have thought of and then integrate those into the plan when, when relevant. Um, and I don't know if Matthew or Danny want to speak specifically on the emergency shelter or Jill. I haven't been involved in that side. I, I didn't have anything additional to add. I mean, I, I, I think that that's, that's the plan for for all these sections. So well put, Leah. Thank you. <laughs> and, and I might be able to add just a little bit more, um, Mayor. I, I I think there's also an opportunity for education. Um, and you know, in our community, the emergency shelter has been a congregate uh shelter, both for winter emergency sheltering and for um our permanent emergency shelter. And that is, I think, as most people know by this point, um, a very antiquated model. It's not a relevant model um, anymore. So I do think that that educational component um, is going to be really important as we engage with community members. And then as Leah said, elevating the different uh, voices in that conversation so that they can have a, have a conversation, have a dialogue about that together, um, I think will be a, a good opportunity for us. Okay. If there are no more questions from the commission, we can open it up for public comment. Yeah, I have another question. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Matthew, to your point in regards to um, with the permanent supportive and care for those that fall out of, you know, being able to have that, that Medicaid pay for their care, where the population that does not fit in that category, what are some of the reasonings that they don't? Is it because they don't qualify for Medicaid? Is it because uh, what are some of the yeah. what are some of the cross tabs on that? Yeah, so Medicaid expansion is a big part of that. Uh, you have low income households who don't qualify for health insurance uh, because state the state hasn't uh, expanded Medicaid. However, um, it also involves specific types of approved Medicaid services for populations who meet specific criteria. So, for example, in the state of Kansas to receive a community-based supportive service, you have to have a severe mental illness. Um, that is uh, a code that provides community-based services. That's uh, a, it's a code requirement to, to bill for and receive reimbursement for those services. So it does include more than just a household having Medicaid. Um, we have a system that very narrowly defines who the beneficiaries are for certain types of service across the country. And it's really that structure that is at play here. Um, you have a very similar situation when it concerns the elderly and aging population who needs um, assisted living. Um, 
you know, there's Medicaid will provide assisted living. However, there's not, for example, a requirement that an assisted living provider accept Medicaid. So, for example, within Lawrence and Douglas County, it's very difficult to enter into any of the assisted living facilities when you're a low-income household just receiving Medicaid. So there will be, and you know, that's a that's a part part of that population that we would have to find, figure out some other model. Um, that's probably a little simpler than folks who don't have any kind of pair source because theoretically someone could start a business that is willing to provide the service and receive reimbursement at a Medicaid rate. As long as they're willing to do it for the Medicaid rate, uh, we could possibly, you know, create the kind of support needed there. But um, that's just a few examples. <clears throat> that's what I was wondering about, you know, creating a pseudo Medicaid encounter rate in order to identify cost and bringing that in if we're needing yeah. to use public dollar, I mean, private dollars or grant dollars to do that. Is that narrowing in diagnoses for, um, for mental health? Is that mirrored as it relates to substance abuse and individuals who suffer from substance abuse disorders? Um, I don't believe it's it's a one-to-one -one mirror. So DECA, for example, does provide substance use services. They do get Medicaid reimbursement, but I'm I I'm not totally up on the SUD side and Medicaid, but I don't I don't think that they can um, provide those services on a community-based level, like going into someone's home and working with them in their own apartment as a supportive service. I don't think their license would allow them to receive Medicaid reimbursement for that type of service. Thank you, Matthew. Those are all the questions I have. Okay, thank you, Commissioner. Uh, so we will, we, one, will one last thing. we do have some local processes that help uh, cover those bases. So Douglas County provides money for the uninsured. And that is one example of a local funding stream through Douglas County that helps, you know, helps us meet the gap. But the gap is a lot larger than, you know, what is being met right now. <laughs> Thank you, Matthew. Appreciate that. So we'll move on to public comment on this item. Any public comment from the audience? Thank you, Nancy Snow. Uh, thank you very much for that presentation of the strategic plan. Very impressive. I do have several comments. Uh, number one, um, I noticed that uh, unhoused people were not listed among the stakeholders. Uh, I would urge the uh, people who are working on the plan to bring unhoused members of the population into the process as soon as possible. I don't see a reason for not including them. Uh, number two, uh, as Commissioner Finkeldy pointed out, the emergency shelter options were the least well-baked of all of the other options. Um, I noticed there were low numbers of beds, and I was told in a meeting the other day that there are 300 to 350 unhoused people in this community uh, who will at some point need emergency shelter because we do have winter and it does get cold and freezing temperatures do occur and people who are out in the open are at risk of suffering and dying. Um, number three, uh, I applaud the strategic plan's uh, emphasis on equity and inclusion. Uh, I would say, and I will repeat this at some of the community, uh, community forums, um, uh, you're not starting with a clean slate. Uh, 
the city has made mistakes uh, regarding equity and inclusivity. Uh, I will quote uh, a couple of people here. This is from an indigenous person at the uh, North Lawrence shelter site. The city PR person told me I could go elsewhere. Then someone else says, nice toes, they cost a pretty penny, huh? She replied, yep, now that's white privilege, nice. Uh, another quote from an advocate, I just left camp. A comment I heard from a couple of people of color on the sanctions side was, oh yeah, close us in and separate us from the white folk over there. It was said in a joking way, but often people try to make it sound like a joke when it's truly how they feel. And as we know, our friends at the camp have been marginalized and seen a lot more prejudice in their lives than some of us. Perception is their reality. This is what happens when you do not give city personnel diversity training. They make mistakes. They make mistakes that offend people of color. And that can't be allowed to continue. And this is related to my final point. If the city must keep going in terms of efforts to manage unhoused people, please, please, Bring qualified personnel into the picture. Don't let unqualified personnel go and interact with people and make things worse for them and make things worse for efforts to move forward. Thank you. All right. Any other public comment on this item? I agree with what she said about you guys, including the voices of the people that you're affecting. You're not going to do that for several years, apparently. You keep sending. Yeah, Miss Sellers mentioned something about own continuum of care, and I thought, how ridiculous is that? Because our city staff can't even manage a site to find a dead girl in in a reasonable amount of time. I mean, she laid in that tent dead for how long? More than a day. Was it more than 36, 48 hours? Was it longer than that? We go out there and we talk to the individuals that are at that camp and they tell us, they tell us who does the job and who doesn't. You know, I can tell you right now, one of the best people they have out there is a part-time sanitation worker that's been assigned there as a temporary assignment while she's on light duty. Everybody at that camp likes Deidre, everybody because she cares. The people know who cares and who doesn't. And they also know the fallacy of what's going on in this room. Because at the same time that you're not including those voices, you have a commissioner talking about trying to grab all the control to the city and make the city just take care of it all when we know that can't happen because of what we've already seen. Simultaneously, shortly, well, shortly after that, we have an assistant city manager talking about how we need to be educated. No, no, you need to be educated. Those people out there have something to teach you about humanity. Because I'm telling you right now, the amount of charity in their hearts, the amount of group caring that goes on out there is unheard of in this city. You walk down the street, how many people stop and ask you if you're doing okay today? How are you doing? They're always checking on each other. But your city staff goes out there and dictates the controls, removes their ability to check on each other. You've segregated that camp. You've taken Jen Adams and said she can't go over there anymore. That woman has done things that saved lives over the winter. 
and you have now pushed her out when you should be including her voice. That's shameful. That's very shameful. Other public comment on this item? Good evening. My name is Steve Ozark. I'm the co-coordinator, co-chair of the Ending Homelessness Team for Justice Matters and the secretary of the Coalition for Homeless Concerns. And I first want to thank and congratulate our city and county leadership and, a and our commissioners for owning up to homelessness in our, in our city and our community. Most local governments do not take this leadership and this issue has goes unsolved and is growing as a national scourge. Homelessness is a housing problem, it's a discrimination and inequity problem, but most of all, I believe homelessness is a problem of the heart where we fail to see our neighbors as people who seek to receive just what they need. I'm privileged to be part of the team that put this five-year strategic plan together. These community leaders need to be recognized for their hard work and their continued dedication. Now we need to listen to the community to see what can be improved. The people who created the five-year plan understand they're committing them themselves and their agencies to the fulfillment of the outcomes we choose, meaning they're signing on for even more work. But instead of bailing water, I believe we're setting sail. I want to thank the citizens of Lawrence who by and large are calling for a change to end the problems of homelessness in Lawrence. I've never seen this much equity and, and inclusion and, and power amongst us all to do the same thing about this issue. We have the resources and focus to make it happen, but there's some areas that I'd like to address of need. On page 11, the, the housing community plan calls for 1,500 new affordable rental units and 400 new affordable homeowner units within the next five years. But there's no mention of these units being permanently affordable. There isn't even a goal of how many of these units will be created to be permanent. Anyone trying to buy or build a house in Lawrence knows we lack land and we lack affordability. If we continue to ignore the most systemic action that we can take, making units permanently affordable now, we're kicking the can down the road. Ending homelessness and bridging inequity for rentals and home ownership throughout our populations will require vast, vastly increasing permanent housing options with tailored levels of supportive and health services to address people's needs and their goals. This needs careful and primary consideration to make affordable housing sites permanent now while we can afford to do so. Phase four of the plan should first and foremost, foremost call for two public sessions with people who are most knowledgeable about this problem, our friends and neighbors who are experiencing homelessness. One meeting at the Lawrence Community Shelter and a second coordinated meeting for campers and individuals and families experiencing homelessness must be included in these next few months before we make any decisions to go forward. We also need training. We need our own community-wide understanding of homelessness. Thank you, Steve. Appreciate it. Other public comment on this item? Good evening. I'm John Crable, along with Steve Ozark, and uh, co-director for Justice Matters Ending Homelessness Committee. So this is an issue I, along with all of you and everyone else left in this room, deeply cares about. Caring about it and actually executing a comprehensive and strategic plan to genuine, genuinely address it are not always the same thing. Um, 
Steve didn't get a chance to mention a young lady named Julia Orlando, uh, whom we got to know uh, on a very frequent basis about three years ago. Uh, look it up, Bergen County, New Jersey, reached functional zero after uh, she made that an initiative uh, and in just three years. Uh, we are incredibly fortunate that Julia's experience, her knowledge, and her understanding is now available to all of us over the course of the next three years through funding from the state of Kansas. Now, it's understandable that through this whole process, we're all going to make a few mistakes along the way, but it would be a really big one, we believe, without a doubt, if we did not take advantage of the things that we can and will learn from Julia Orlando. We asked Julia recently to brief, brief, briefly describe the, the steps in reaching functional zero within a community. And uh, here's the five she mentioned, and they mirror and support much of what we've all heard here tonight from both Lee and Jill. Number one, build a homelessness response system that can immediately end the experience of unsheltered homelessness through housing and focus strategies based on health and based on human services. Number two, transform existing sheltering programs through models that are based on the needs of the people they serve, that are safe, that are welcoming, and that are supportive. Number three, encourage the scale and range of permanent housing and essential services needed so that individuals have the housing and support needed to thrive. Number four, ensure that the homeless response system can respond to every housing crisis with diversion and prevention assistance so that people do not fall into homelessness while also working across systems to eliminate the risk of homelessness. And number five, continually improve crisis response and rehousing operations, leading with racial equity and housing justice. In a nutshell, that's the plan and the path that she laid out and followed in Bergen County, New Jersey. It's the one they use in Rockford, Illinois. It's the one that 14 other communities across the United States have used to reach functional zero. Time. Functional zero. What Thank you, John. Other public comment on this item? Thank you, John. Um, we'll, if not, we'll go to Zoom. Oh, Chris. Okay. Hi, this is Chris Flowers. I just want to echo the sentiments that I think we should be having more inclusion of the the houseless and when we're making these decisions. I would just like to, I mean, I, I think you guys have done a good job when it comes to um, returning the, the big rock of, of including the, the people we want to give the rock back to. Like, I mean, you, the city seems like it's been very deliberate in its, its decision making and with including the, the tribe that we're giving the rock back to. I would just like to say, well, you know, maybe you should, I, I would like this, the city to, I guess, um, show some of that same kind of um, thought and concern for the houseless when, when you're making decisions for them. Thank you. Chris, any other public con comment from the audience? If not, we'll go to Zoom. Jen Molsey. Um, it's beautiful. 
it's a beautiful plan. Um, thank you, thank you to those who worked on it. I got to see, be a part of that for a small moment, but I do not take credit for that. Thank you, Leah. I mean, there's there's Leah. Thank you, Jill. Thank you, David. Thank you, Matt. Um, thank you, Justice Matters. I mean, this this has been a hard day, and this is ending on a really good note. This is a really, really, really good plan. I hope that it's executed as well as it was put in on paper. Um, one thing that the emergency services is not baked very, it's half baked. Um, everyone knows emergency services, that's my baby. Um, but I do really love the fact that we in, reiterate the need for that access point for the day centers and also for the street outreach. I'm um, talking about that, that Medicaid piece. I would highly recommend that all your street outreach workers on that team be source certified so that they are able to help those that are eligible for Medicaid who are not being able to access it to be able to get that because we do have sore workers in the community, but they are far and few between. And if you ask Matt, he would probably tell you that there's not enough of them um, for the need. So um, definitely recommend that. And then um, John and Steve kind of stole my thunder. So again, I just wanted to um, reiterate that I would, I definitely love the community engagement piece. I would ask that this um, group think about potentially holding one at LCS or also the North Lawrence site to get that lived experience in there. Um, and we know that they are invited to the other community engagement events, but we recognize that sometimes it's not as accessible for them. So I would ask that you all look at maybe bringing um, one of these events directly to them. And then last but not least, Leo Orlando, she's a main looker up about her. She had two pieces. She had the street experience and she had the administrative. Every time Leo, at a time she'll have a backpack on and she'll be on the streets talking. Well, so you got to love that. Thank you. Good job, team. Right. Any other public comment on Zoom? That's all the comments. Made. All right. Bring it back to the commission for any discussion. Thoughts I wanted to share. Um, one, I'm, I, Matt alluded to this, and I know I've shared it in other pieces. I like that I, I enjoyed that this next round will um, start to dig a little bit deeper after we have some of that engagement. What I hope that will come out of that um, from this team is getting to the cost piece. We know that when it comes to affordable housing, um, there will need to be some leveraging of dollars. And we've talked a lot about units, but we haven't really, we've spoken at, but we haven't spoken to what that cost is going to look like and what funds it will take to leverage that. So as we think about the local level, but why I talked about the need to address policies on a state and federal level is what do those state and federal dollars look like? Because we can't do this with local dollars alone. It's it's impossible. And we've heard, and, and I know Matt has shared it, you know, it, it is going to be an investment. This is an investment into our community. It's going to be a very large investment. And I think as policymakers and legislators on a local level, we need to know what that number is and what those funding streams as they currently stand are so that we can leverage and lobby to our state as well as federal delegation to say, hey, um, we need you to be 
um, good partners in this work with us as well. We did that this past week in NLC, but that is a conversation that can't be a one-off conversation. It has to be a continued, um, it has to be continued messaging. So I'd like to know at some point, you know, we've tossed around a lot of numbers around units and whatnot. What are we looking at high level? Um, what an investment, what does that investment cost? You know, maybe not necessarily pulling out where the funding will come from, but what is the sticker price on this project? Um, second, foster care, um, as well as our, our, our youth and our, our, um, families that are served by our school district. Um, I'd like to hear more about projects around that. Um, I had the pleasure as a student, MPA student working um, with USD 500 with their impact KC model. I know I've shared that with a couple of our county commissioners on how to implement that um, in our community. And it speaks to addressing um, our unhoused uh, population um, as it relates to the school district and that McKinney-Vento definition of homelessness. Uh, we've talked about the regional capacity. Um, you know, we have two to three major players in our community um, that are doing this work, um, but that's not enough. And it's not just our community, it's not just um, our county, it's statewide, it's nationwide. We have a huge mental health, social service capacity, that workforce capacity, as well as funding capacity that needs to be addressed. So ensuring that not only do we have money for the bricks and mortar, uh, but identifying what does that capacity looks like as it relates to infrastructure, as well as service staff, you know, to make this all look successful from a transitional permanent supportive um, emergency shelter, what does that look like um, from an FTE perspective? What does that look like from an infrastructure cost? And that infrastructure cost might be part of that sticker price as well. Um, during the community feedback, um, would love for the groups to engage those who are attending on how do they, how, what is their thoughts about housing? Um, we know that we've been a victim of the single family detached versus multi family, but we all, we've talked at about the missing middle. Some of our, many of our uh, community folks may not understand what missing middle is or that what different types of housing could look like outside of a single family detached or living in uh, a multi unit apartment. So engaging the community about what do, what different housing types do they think of when you hear affordable housing. Um, to that piece, um, we talked about, um, I know Jen talked about centering the unhoused. I know Dr. Snow uh, talked about it as well. That needs to be part of this education and engagement piece. Um, you know, it goes to the adage of access plus use equals success. Um, if you want to ensure that your work is inclusive, inclusivity talks, inclusivity is centered around access, one's ability to access resources, but most importantly, the success in utilizing those resources. At this point, if you don't have an opportunity to have the unhoused as partners in this work, we are speaking at their ability to use and access resources and be successful. But we need to ask them and we need to be able to track that. So utilizing and centering unhoused individuals in this work will make us, will make this work, will give us um, outcome points that truly speaks to whether or not we are truly being inclusive 
And if we are creating success within our models by the ability for one who needs the resources to use them efficiently and effectively. Um, to that point, this is an educational point to talk about continual care. Um, to Mr. Aravi's point, to dismiss, not dismiss, but dispute Mr. Aravi's point, continual care has nothing to do with the city. Continual care is an, is an integration of health services and health partners to provide care to a population. Um, in no way can the city be the center of this. In no way should the city be the center. Um, and that's not what continual cares are, uh, continual of care is. That is why I've asked for a, a study session to talk about that. We kind of talked at it at this presentation, but I think because we still have individuals who are unfamiliar with what that language is, that's an educational opportunity for us as well to continue to educate our community on what the complexity of unhoused and affordable housing and how that fits up under one, one umbrella, but the nuances and the systems of it and what that looks like. So opportunity there, continual care has nothing to do with the city. The city is a partner in this work, but we're not centered in this work. And then there's a piece that John and Steve brought up about uh, permanent affordable housing. You know, we've had, we've talked at this as well. Uh, we are limited by state statute about what we can do as it relates to incentives. Um, but we do have partners in this uh, community who build a lot of life tech projects and who turn around and ask for either um, abatements or um, AHAP funds. And while it is good measures that, you know, life tech projects are permanent for a period, they're not permanent for perpetuity. And so I think we need to, that there's a difference there. And while both are equally beneficial to a community, there's only one that's permanent in per perpetuity. And life tech projects are not typically in this community, projects of per a permanent support, a permanent affordable housing in perpetuity. So is there opportunities well, as we talk about leveraging funds and building these units? Is there ways that we can um, address that? And the other last point I had was in regards to the homework site. You know, I, we, like I said, we, we talked about that in December. Um, I think what this group has the opportunity as to, to speak to that point and us as commissioners, we have to understand is that children who, ex who are in the foster care system um, are from this community, are not from this community, are sometimes placed in this community, or maybe from other neighboring counties and may come here. And so the nuances of foster care and youth aging out of foster care needs to be looked at from a true regional perspective um, to build housing for youth aging out of foster care. Um, we wouldn't say that only those who aged out in Lawrence or Douglas County would only be eligible for it. And so are there opportunities to, to be funding, regional funding partners in this work? It's gonna take a nuanced and innovative approach that we may not be ready for that now, but two to three years, hopefully down the line, we could. Um, but we need to we think outside of our city and county bubble as it relates to topics such as foster care and youth who age out. So um, those are all the points I have and I yield my time to the rest of the commission. Any other um, discussion on this? Um, I, uh, I'll bring a couple of points uh, that my, uh, I know that uh, 
uh, in part of that, my question, I was uh, asking of answers from Matthew and um, they were being also sustainability part of it, which I, like Commissioner Sellers said, uh, is, needs to be fully addressed with intention if we want this to be successful and to stand up on its own and uh, continue to thrive. Um, and also uh, what uh, the, the gentleman from uh, Justice Matters mentioned with the permanent affordable housing aspect of it, um, uh, figuring out those ways to go ahead and make that happen, whether it, you know, um, with our community partners and uh, or, you know, land banks or land trusts or uh, anything of the sort to make sure that uh, we have that continual affordable aspect for, for those folks that need it. And uh, hopefully um, a lot of this work can unlock, um, you know, homes for people that are seeking them right now, because right now it's uh, proving to be very difficult. So I look forward to um, having the houseless as a part of this conversation because they're vitally important and have lived experience. So um, I'm really impressed with the plan put forward today um, by all of the players involved. I, I commend them for all their hard work and all their effort and uh, doing this truly vital and important work. And uh, um, I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, um, what it will bring. Anybody else? I'd just say a couple things. Thanks to Leah and Jill and Gabby and Matthew for leading the effort and everyone on the team. I know they've put a lot of work into it, lots of meetings. Um, obviously, we still have more work to do, and getting that community feedback will be an important part of that. Um, you know, I do do support, you know, um, hearing from the unhoused. I certainly support hearing more from Julie Orlando throughout the process and using her going forward. Um, you know, I think the strategic plan, you know, um, you know, we talk about our strategic plan a lot. And when I go out and speak to community members and I talk about our strategic plan, I usually start by saying, you know, we've all been involved in some groups where you have a strategic plan and no one really pays attention to it. In other places, you have a strategic plan that really defines what you do. And certainly the city has created a strategic plan that really defines what we do, as we talked about tonight, with Safe and Secure and others. But I think this um, this strategic plan is going to bring the county, the city, and all our, our partners together in really um, pointing us all in the same direction to get to that functional zero. And it's multidimensional. I mean, we spend a lot of time talking about one of our portions of that, which is emergency shelter. Um, and we talk a lot about our, uh, the affordable housing, um, but we have supportive housing and, and many things in between that the county's taking the lead on. So having the strategic plan is is not only important to our work, but the county's work and bringing everyone together. So it's a, it's a very important part of this and and I, I'm really looking forward to the feedback we get certainly um, getting some more details on the emergency shelter part of that but then having a plan that we can use going forward obviously it'll be updated be changed as we go um, but having that guiding document to lead both the city and the county kind of like plan 2040 does on the zoning side to have this plan on the housing side um, I think will make a, a big difference in how those work together to inform our community going forward. So thanks everyone for the work and I look forward to, to the continued work on this. Okay.
Yeah, I also want to thank everybody for their work on this. And um, this is a great product from everything I've read so far. I've still got to dive into it a little deeper on the data. Um, but I, um, I, w I will say for the first time, as we've worked on this over the years since I've been on the commission, even since the first year I've been on the commission, we began putting more money into the issue and trying to begin to address it. It has taken us some time, but we're starting to get there. But seeing this plan and the work that the county, the city, and all the stakeholders are putting into it, I really feel for the first time we're starting to get a foundation, that we're starting to see a foundation form, and um, it's a plan that we can um, take hold of and really run with it over the next five to ten years. And I really appreciate the work that's being done, um, done on it. And I also would support um, any uh, to have some sessions or be part of the discussion, have the houseless uh, folks be part of that discussion, um, to hear from them and to hear their concerns and their thoughts. I would encourage the group to um, engage with them directly. So thank you very much again for your work. Anything else? Is that it? All right, we are done. We're going to take a 10-minute break. Um, we'll be back here in, in 10 minutes, Sherry. Thank you. All right, we are, whoops, we're back. And we're ready to move on to our regular agenda items. We'll start with item number one, which is consider adopting resolution number 7474, desi designating members of the community police oversight work group and clarifying its project description, purpose, and expectations and scope of work. Okay. Good evening, Mayor and City Commission. I'm Casey Toomey. I'm uh, one of our assistant city managers. Tonight, we're asking uh, you all to consider Resolution 7474, as the mayor mentioned, designating members of the Community Police Oversight Work Group, clarifying its project description, purpose, and expectations and scope of work. As you recall, last year, a work group was formed to review and make recommendations about the process by which complaints against law enforcement officers are addressed. Since that time, there have been a number of challenges with the appointments to the work group, resulting in delays to this very important, excuse me, this very important work. In an effort to encourage progress of the work group, staff is bringing forth this resolution. If adopted, it would do three primary things. Designate the members of the work group, provide a process by which vacancies will be filled should they occur, and remove the requirement that the work group focus on previously submitted ordinance amendments. It's our hope that providing a process to fill any future vacancies will keep the work group progressing. By removing the requirement to focus on the prior draft ordinance, it will expand the parameters of the work group's discussion about the complaint process and allow members to consider a wider range of ideas and solutions for our community. This isn't to say the work group cannot consider the draft previously prepared by the CPRB. It can still inform their work, along with the city gate report, research, best practices from other communities, and the city's strategic plan, among other things. We stand committed to continuing with the work of building trust between the Lawrence Police Department and our community, and we recommend adopting Resolution 7474 so the work group can begin again and help create a community that is safe and secure. I'm happy to stand for questions. Okay, any questions for Casey? Commissioner Sellers? No. 
Okay. So we will at this point any any um open it up for public comment at this time. No questions. That's sad to hear because if you guys have been watching the CPRB meeting, you'll see that the work group is the least of your concerns. You have a chief of police that brings half reports in. How can we ever get an ordinance in order or do anything toward progress until we have a chief of police that comes in and is honest with us and straight and doesn't manipulate the details, details that they don't think people understand. Use of force details that are skewed. The work group is not going to fix all this if we're not going to allow the meetings, if we're not going to get the, the police out of the picture. Yeah, well, they need to be a part of the process. But what you've been seeing at those CPRB meetings is the police controlling things. And I think if you remember back to when Jane Gibson resigned, she predicted this. She did. And I think it was that Ford Chrysler conversation about how we do different things. And like I said earlier, we never hear about fireman safety. They have one of the most high-risk jobs on the planet. But officer safety is used for a lot of excuses. And once again, we're postponing the work. Once again, we're slowing it down right at a point where we're seeing the problems. You're seeing them. Citizens assaulted on the street. Myself is a perfect situation, four times prosecuted with no real reason behind it. This is our police force. We hear about how the police do not trust the CPRB, and that's been a holdup. Well, by God, we don't really care if the police trust the CPRB. They're not intended to. The police need to earn our trust. Just like I told you a minute ago, you guys are the ones that need to be educated about homelessness. The police need to be educated about what the people's trust is and about how to earn it. And they don't earn it by continuing to control things and continuing to water down the process and with your guys' assistance. We've had two different consultant rounds. The second one didn't go anywhere because everything fell apart. Why is everything falling apart? I give you city staff. Nobody, can, nobody consulted us about this. Nobody consulted you, apparently. Did they? Did they talk to you guys about this? Did they bring this ordinance to you before tonight? Was this a plan? No engagement, but we're going to change the program one more time. Just more delay. While people still get beat up. Good evening, Mayor, City Manager, City Commissioners. As you, you all know, most of you know my name is Stephanie Littleton. I've served on the Community Police Review Board <clears throat> since its inception since August of 2018. I have been and will remain as such committed to the efforts of our board to seek accountability and transparency. In regards to the Resolution 7474, 
I would encourage you to reconsider the elimination or the review of our draft ordinance from the oversight work group. What I did hear a little bit in difference from what Casey explained is that it's not completely eliminated, but it concerns me for what I'm going to share about what went into that revision. And some of you may not be aware of that since you're newer on the city commission. I was a member of the subcommittee that created the original project charter. And there was a consensus that the draft ordinance be utilized as an important resource document in the work group scope of work. Some of you may not be aware, like I said, since the draft was completed over two years ago, <clears throat> that we engaged the public during the re revision. We had a whole public engagement, put a lot of work into that. We made personal contacts with approximately 19 different entities. We conducted a Lawrence Listen survey, which received over 300 responses, all of which we compiled and we utilized in our revised ordinance. I feel like we should not allow their voices and our efforts to go unheard. The draft ordinance should be an important resource for the work group relative to improving the complaint review process, which is one of the primary duties, and with assessing and making recommendations regarding the CPRB's role and authority in serving in an advisory, oversight, and or a review capacity. I take, since I still have a minute, I'm not used to kind of being on this side of three minutes. I would just kind of point out the main goals from the revised ordinance, just since it's been a long time since um, we've even talked about it, is to authorize the CPRB to receive and review all complaints versus only bias based when appealed. We've removed all that bias based language throughout that ordinance for a good reason. We enhance the definitions as well as the specific duties of the board. We address the number of board members increasing from seven to nine in order to do more things that we need to do with subcommittees and such. And we enhance the criteria to, to, to do better with the qualifications for membership to the board. Lastly, I would just ask that you, I would encourage you to also as well to reconsider my appointment to the work group. Thank you very much. Thank you. Any other public comment on this specific item in the audience? Hi, this is Chris Flowers. Um, my, okay, my thought, the biggest thought in my mind is um, whose idea was it to streamline the process, um, which as I guess is what's being suggested here. Um, whose idea was it though? Is it city staff or is it the police union? Um, that's something you all should be asking is like whose idea was it because if it's the if it if it's an idea that came from the police maybe could seriously reconsider it um also before um i i think it was that that other the board that's looking at boards where there's talk about um how many members are going to be on it i think it was commissioner sellers was talking about how smaller groups can be better Maybe we should be reducing the size of this this um, group and eliminating some of the police members on this. I mean, it's how many police members are on it? Is it four? I mean, I, I don't know why we need the police on on this board. If it's if it's designed to reform the cops, why why are you in, including them? Um, I mean, I can get including them, but on the board, like, why wouldn't they just be? like uh, have a representative not 
on the board, but at the meetings, like some of the other people that are going to be included. Um, and I, I it, when I when I see this, my 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 thought is, um, do we really want to reform the police, or or are we trying to lick their boots? Because that's what this seems like. It seems like they're we're just letting the police control the police reform and we need to be reforming them. I mean, it's not them letting us reform them. I mean, that's, that's kind of ridiculous. And that's what it seems like um, the city's willing to do, but I want y'all to stand up and, and I, I, I think that the, the work the the community police review board put into the draft ordinance, I, I don't think it should go to waste. And I don't know. I would remove some of the police members from this new board. Thank you. Thank you. Any other public comment from the audience? Not we'll go to Zoom. Alex Kerr. Back in December 2020, I decided to start going to the CPRB board meetings because I believed civic engagement needed to happen within the Lawrence Police Department specifically within that ordinance that at that time they were getting ready for the public um, public feedback. Ever since December 2020, I have told board members on the Community Police Review Board countless times something needs to happen, something needs to get done. And now, and I said, the community's the community's getting mad because nothing is getting done. You know, I want to thank every single person that made a comment on this item, especially um, Stephanie Littleton, you know. I think, you know, am I, I think she is, I think the commissioners, I think the mayor and the city commissioners should listen to her because let's face it, She's she's on the CPRB board and she knows what she's talking about. And I would never ever underestimate her. Her. You know, I really want an ordinance that has public approval. Like I really want an ordinance. I want a new ordinance that has public approval because that's really the only way the community police review board is going to get anything done. You know, I feel, and like what um, Mr. Flowers said, there's way too many police officers on that work group. You know, I feel like it's totally biased by the police department and the city of Lawrence. Uh, you know, hey, Michael, me, I can name probably ever seen, you know, Chris, Jeremy, Steve. We all worked countless hours with working with this board to get something done. We, you know, I go home and I don't, I, I, I go home and I look at this ordinance that was never approved. I looked how bad the Community Police Review Board is because it's bad. There's nothing getting done in the chief of police in the police department are the problem and the city is because they're not doing anything. Um, the city commission has done nothing. 
but I want a I, I want a work group that's you know actually has people that care and spend hours working on or working with the community place to board as stakeholders. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Stephen Watts. Hi, I uh, made my opinion known in an email to you all. I hope you, you read it. Sometimes I think you really don't. Uh, there's never responses. Not really. But, you know, now the police move forward with the assistance of the town executive team to further neutralize any efforts to obtain and secure police accountability should you approve adopting resolution 7474 there are too many police on the work group there were there still are and there are too many police in lawrence kansas that's the way we can get more firefighters is by reducing the police force and increasing the amount of firefighters. But at any rate, that's enough. Let's see how you vote. Let's see if you really want a citizens review board that really does review the police. Thanks for your time. Ready neither. That's all the comments, Mayor. All right, we'll bring it back up to the commission for any discussions or any more questions. Anybody? I'll say a few Mr. things Sellers? I was waiting for. <laughs> I said, I'll say a few things. I had to wait for a couple of uh, preschoolers to calm down while they're eating, finishing up their dinner in the background. A um, couple of things. Uh, it is not the goal of the CPRB to look at public safety systems. Um. If that's what the CPRB wants to do, then there needs to be a draft ordinance that speaks to that. Um, just like there was an iteration of a draft ordinance to reimagine the work of the CPRB. It is the task of the community policing work group um, to look at public safety, the system of public safety as a whole inclusive of the CPRB, whether it's in its current iteration or in its future iteration. Um, there are some in our community, there's so many in our community that miss that point. And I hear it um, in commission meetings. I hear it when talking to constituents. I hear it in emails. There are two different things at play here and we're trying to converge them together, consolidate them together. And that's not, that's, that's never been, that shouldn't have been the goal to begin with. And I've shared that. I shared that as a citizen prior to joining the Human Relations Commission, when I went to the CPRB and shared my thoughts on the 13, air, on the 13 task items under Mayor Ananda that our commission at the time couldn't really stick to and assess at, at that time. So you had a group come together and create a draft under certain situ under a certain climate and say it was the best that they can do that missed opportunities to target specific groups who are disproportionately impacted by 
some of the outcomes that would come before a CPRB that are talked about in CJCC. And there was pushback then. Now, when there's an opportunity for entities of the CPRB to be a part of a bigger systems thinking and systems approach to public safety and reimagining a citizens police review board, we now say we don't want, we, we've had all of this great input. And so we keep, it, it frustrates me because I feel like I am cycling through the same comments and I've been cycling through the same comments since 2020. And we have no problem using black and brown bodies to perpetuate a narrative about public safety in our community and want to use it to drive a narrative about what we think something should and should not be. And we don't understand the very system of which it's a part of. We have a very narrow lens and we continue, and there's a group that continues to speak from that narrow lens and it disrupts our ability to have individuals who we have appointed who are committed to doing this work and we dismiss them and we and we and we have we have folks that come and want to say oh they're not going to do the work and the police are going to speak over them and we have to stop that we have to stop that we have a resolution in front of us that will be able to give this group a broad brush to be able to look at the system. They can use the draft as guidance. It is not the only thing. They can go back and be and do targeted messaging, targeted engagement. They can even pull items from the 13, from that list of 13 from under then Mayor Ananda that talked about bringing in the Human Relations Commission and partnering with them. We are so narrowly focused on what we think the police are doing and putting the wool over the commission's eyes that we're not seeing, we're missing a golden opportunity to do some real good systems work. That's what this resolution gives this group the opportunity to finally do without narrow restrictions, with a group of individuals who know what they want, that have an idea of what this work looks like, who have been committed to this work, who have done systems work in the past. So this is where we're at. This is a good resolution. I support this resolution. I support the individuals who have been appointed by us as commissioners. I support the members of CPRB who are on the, the work group and I'm ready to get this work done. Any other discussion on this? Uh, no, yeah, it's Commissioner Sellers pretty much said most of it and all of it is uh, it's, generally a conflation between the work group and the CPRB themselves. Um, uh, wish it wasn't the case, but it tends to keep reoccurring. Um, and I would reiterate that uh, composition of the board is was intentional and there are eight community members um, uh, versus the four uh, members of the police force. Um, that was also intentional. 
Um, now, some of those community, community members are also part of the CPRB, but um, we that that was part of the plan as well. And um, hopefully, if we allow them the space to do it, they will do some of the work that we've tasked them to do and really find good solutions for us going forward. So I support the resolution as well. Um, yeah, I think what's important to me about this, uh, as has been mentioned uh, by Commissioner Sellers, is actually the expansion of what they can look at. Um, and, and it is not throwing every all the work out that previous um, members or uh, commissions have done. Um, they have the ability to use that. Um, and and I, I trust in the process and I have a great deal of faith in the people I see on this list that were chosen um, out of our community who have a great deal of experience among them. Um, and, and I concur just to get this process moving and give them the space they need to start their work. Thank you. So I just want to just have some clear, make sure I understand um, what Casey said earlier about being able to use that draft ordinance, ordinance within their discussions. Um, is there anything... Can you point out to me in the resolution where it allows them the opportunity, if they so choose, to actually make changes to the ordinance? Is that part of their purview? I'm looking for the exact language. Because that's what I'm interested in is, is part of this whole process is to also look at the ordinance to strengthen the ordinance, because I don't think we have a very strong ordinance at all. The community, but that's the work of the CPRB. Excuse me, I'm, I'm I appreciate that. Let me let Casey finish. The in in um the resolution in section five, it says paragraph three of the project charter is amended to read as follows: the community police oversight work group will review the entire existing process in which complaints against the LKPD are handled, including intake, investigation, resolution, public reporting, and the CPRB's oversight role. Um, I mean, I think the oversight role encompasses the the resolution that, or I'm sorry, the ordinance that establishes that. Okay. I, I mean, I, I, that I would okay. look to my friend, Tony, if she has any other things to add. Does that sound right? I mean, it sounds right. Is that? Yes, I would agree that that language does give that flexibility. Okay, I appreciate it because I do want a discussion. I do want a discussion of the ordinance as part of this whole process. Um, and I just don't want, I want to make sure that's not eliminated. So I appreciate what Casey said earlier that it was because when I read through this, I didn't, get, I didn't get that notion that that was part of it. And so with that, I can support it. However, I would also add that I do think that, um, that Stephanie, Stephanie Lilliton offers the history behind how what has been done on the Community Police Review Board and the work that has been done and an understanding of that. And I would um, I would ask the commission whether they would entertain adding her back on because I do think we're missing out on a significant amount of history that um, is not on that work group. Mayor, this is Commissioner Sellers. I will say that when I read the resolution, I guess we both had differences in interpretation because I never thought that the 
again, that the work group couldn't speak to the work of the CPRB as it relates to the ordinance, but that they have an opportunity to look at that from a systems standpoint, from a larger piece, how it fits within the mechanism of community policing and that they could give feedback. There are members, we know that there are members of the CPRB on the work group. So there's opportunity to talk about that and to recommend that that charge goes either stays within the work group or it can move back into the CPRB. Again, I think we need to allow for that broadness and not try to continue to narrow things down as to does it say this, you know, interpretation, yes, is interpretation but to say that I want them to look at it, of course they're going to look at it. It's part of the bigger system. As So I just wanted to reiterate that. we it's, it's a system. It's one piece of the bigger system. So for them not to look at it would negate the whole reason for having a work group and having CPRB members on it. That was the conversation I had, and that was part of the initial discussion that we had when at the time... Um, Commissioner Jane Gibson was on CPRB and there was pushback about the, the role of the ordinance and with the work group. So we've been cycling through this and it's become very reductive and, um, and frustrating. So um, to that point, I recognize Commissioner Littleton has history and, I, and, 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 and we see that. Um, you know, I don't know if we, we need to entertain adding her back to the CPRB. There's other ways that folks who have history and knowledge can partake and participate in a process, um, in processes such like this, and they do not have to be at the table doing it. They can support it in a different way. And so that's nothing, that, that is, a, that's, that's nothing personal or in, speaks to anything. I'm just saying that's, there's multiple ways to be engaged in a process, whether you're part of the primary role or you're a member of, of an engagement team or, or a tertiary aspect of that. Um, it goes without saying, you know, while I wasn't on the commission when this work started, I did track it and I tracked it very well. And that there were individuals that were part of that CPRB team 2020 early 2019, 2020, and even early 2021, that in their conversations, not only were they rude to city staff, they were disrespectful to city staff. They challenged city staff. They questioned what city staff said and would question them by saying, that's not what I heard from insert commissioner's names, as if to um, allude to some type of um, walking quorum. So, you know, there's been a lot of angst and history and vitriol with the CPRB. And we're moving forward with the group. We have some stability right now. And I'd like for us to keep it that way. I'd like for us to, to, to keep moving it that way. And if there's anyone who previously sat on the CPRB, who were part of the ordinance drafting, if they want to participate when there's community participation that presents itself at that time, then I would say that they need to participate at that time. But we're not going backwards. We can't go backwards. Well, I would never suggest that we go backwards, that's for sure. And in fact, I'm 
I feel like having the discussion or having the ability to have that discussion about the draft ordinance within the group, which it sounds like we're going to, which is good, uh, actually broadens the discussion. And so I'm not trying to narrow it. I'm trying to broaden it to make sure that that we look uh, that the work group has an opportunity to look at at um, def different um, several different aspects of it. And um, and so, you know, I would disagree. I am trying to broaden it and by including that. And I think it's a, a good piece, a, a good piece of work that doesn't that should not be just dismissed. And, and it sounds and like, I don't, like I said, excuse me, I'm, let me finish, please. There's and, a little bit of it, delay. It, it, so it does, please don't take my sound, inter interjecting as disrespect, Mayor. Are you are you are you finished or? I said there's a delay, so please don't take my interjection okay. as disrespect. Okay, thank you very much. I didn't realize that. And and so you know, again, I just go back to I feel like it's broadening it by allowing the work group to to um, pro have this in discussion. And I do want the ordinance to be changed. I don't think that it provides um, enough. I don't know if oversight's the right word, but at least accountability for to to our police as well as our community. And so I just want to make sure that's not lost in this whole discussion as we move forward. Mayor, I think we're saying the same thing. We're just saying it two different ways. As I stated several months ago, this is systems work. So when Miss Jane Gibson came to us and talked about us dismissing the draft ordinance for in place of the work group, I stated in that meeting that this would be an enhancement, that the CPRB and the work of the CPRB is part of the work group because it's part of the bigger system. We're saying the exact same thing. We're just saying it two different ways. So I think harping on whether or not they could utilize the draft is just a moot issue there. They have the opportunity to look at it and it prevents the work group from having a narrow scope. It does create a broadened scope. We're saying the exact same thing. We're just saying it two different ways. So on my second point is I still think Stephanie Littleton would make a, a very good asset based on the history of her work, the body of her work. And I would ask if any other commissioners were interested in that. Yes, uh, I go ahead. Uh, I'm I'm comfortable with the work group as it currently stands. Okay. Um, I was going to say, you know, I maybe say a little bit what Commissioner Sellers was saying in a different way, which is, you know, I think this what we're asking this group to do is to find a way. I think we say in the opening paragraph you know, to work to help build um, greater trust between Lawrence Police Department and the community. And the CPRB is only one very small part of that process. Um, we're asking this group to look at um, a much, I think, a larger um, part of that um, a, a larger segment of that, uh, the systems work, as Commissioner Sellers says it. And I would say, you know, one of my concerns about the 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 proposed ordinance that came out of CPLB previously was it was based on assumptions about how our complaint process will work, how it will be processed, how it will go 
um, how it will then what the CPLB would do with it, and then how it would flow after that, and it it basically created itself within a vacuum of the system in which it could it had purview over. It, it said, "Here's the system we have. We're going to look at it from our point of view, and we are going to create the best." Um, ordinance that we can find given those parameters. And, and I think this work group and what we're trying to direct them to do is look at all the parameters. Don't say what's the best CPLB you can create within the parameters. Let's look at all the parameters and find what is the overall system that builds that trust. And that could take a lot of different forms. And so um, that's why it could get to a point where we say, here are all the parameters. We're not changing the parameters. And this CPLB, as you know, this proposal ordinance is something we're going to look at, or maybe there's parts of that we want to look at. Um, and, and I think that's absolutely fine to look at that. But I think this work group and, and what the direction we're giving them starts at a whole different level. Well, you know, I mean, even if you look at the, the you asked the question, Mayor, about the CPLB ordinance, we even list nine things they're supposed to look at. You know, the CPLB is number five and six of that, not one, two, three, four, not seven, eight, nine, mm -hmm. right? And so we need them to look at this whole system, and the CPLB is only one part of a much bigger question we're asking for them, which is why I think we have members of the CPLB, but we also have members of the public, and we also have members of the police, because we're asking for the whole system. So if this was an, an ordinance that said, please go and rewrite the CPLB ordinance, changing no other parameters, that's one thing, but that's not what we're asking them to do. So anyway, that's why I support the broadening of it, and that's why I support taking the reference to that one ordinance out of it, because I think that limits one through four and seven through nine, because if you're focused on a preconceived number five and six, as it were, that limits one through four and seven through nine. And we want to look at all nine parts of that. And so that is why I, I support taking the proposed language out. And I guess for the same reason, I, I support um, leaving the, the commission as it is. So we have that fresh look. Um, CPLB will still be part of, you know, I assume there'll be a CPLB of some sort when we're done with this. Don't know what it'll be. It might not be even be called that. It might not even exist in that form, or it might exist very similar to what what was proposed. I have no idea what will come out of that, um, but I'm comfortable with the work group as it is because I think that work group is going to, as proposed, will come at it from that broader picture. Well, I'm not advoc advocating for taking any of these nine items out. That's not my proposal at all. It was just to make sure that we in included, and I don't need to keep saying this. I said it several times to make sure that 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 was take that was looked at, that the um, ordinance was looked at. And so that's where I'll leave that. I would never propose to to narrow it at all. I think the nine items that we have there are very substantial. I think they're they will go towards um come you know helping the group come back with a with some good with with some good recommendations. So anything else? Not 
I'd make a motion to adopt resolution number 7474. Second. second. I got a first and I got a first and a second. All in favor? Aye. 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 Passes five to zero. And we're on to item two, which is um, discussion of possible changes to the short-term rental resident short-term residential rental property code unit limitation. Evening Commission, Jeff Crick with Planning and Development Services. The item this evening for you is just a kind of a carry-on conversation that you started back in uh, November of 22 about the cap on the number of uh, rental licenses an individual may have in the city of Lawrence. And so that is all housed in the short-term rental licensing portion of the code. Uh, we also have uh, staff, Brian Jimenez and Trini Westcott are also on the call, can answer any technical questions about the program that you may have, but really just wanted to um, provide a forum for that discussion and see if you have any direction on staff about the rental licensing, the, excuse me, the uh, cap on the number of units an individual may have. Okay. Any questions for staff? So, uh, just for clarification, this is just limited. This is not addressing residential, right? In these part of this discussion, it's just the, uh, well, I mean, let me back up. This isn't addressing the number maximum number of short-term rentals, first of all. Um, but as a part of it, I think there was a secondary discussion of where those yeah. rentals would be. Yeah, I brought this forward because I wanted us to look at the um, limitations, which is three per owner, per not per property, but per owner. And I want us to look at the commercial industrial um, designations as to whether or not we could remove that limitation um, um, from those base zone zoning districts. That's what I wanted to do given the fact that they're commercial and or industrial. And I just want, want to try to, um, you know, not stand in the way of, of commercial endeavors that, um, that are wanting to use this as a tool um, to in their, in their business decisions. And so I just think in the commercial industrial areas that limiting it to three per owner is, is, uh, is not needed. Do we have, a, this is Commissioner Sellers, do we have a constituency group who has discussed expanding short-term rentals to commercial industrial? I have. I have spoke with um, some um, commercial owners, industrial folks who are looking at industrial, um, but for sure commercial owners that um, has discussed with me the idea that you know, it ties their hands up. It's one thing if it's per property, but when three and they own several commercial properties throughout town or um, that it makes it really hard to, when they're trying to determine, you know, financially how they want to, you know, handle their business, that the three limitation is, is pretty daunting for them. So these aren't constituents who are commercial owners who are wanting to get in, get skin in the game. These are commercial owners who are also participating in the residential part that want additional skin in the game? No, I don't know if they own any residential at all. Um, I've just talked to some commercial owners. I, I don't know. Mayor, if, if I may, may I interject some knowledge I have on that? 
it's okay. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. I'm waiting. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. Uh, Brian Jimenez, Code Official, Assistant Director of Planning and Development Services. Our overwhelming um, inquiry from citizens regarding the ordinance as it stands is indeed the cap of three. Um, from um, they, they, Most people feel they should be able to have more than three. And I will say that that often includes residential. So um, I just want you to keep that in mind that it does spread across, um, you know, all zoning, all zoning districts throughout the city. So my question is, then, if we have residential owners that want more than three, how can they have that? How can they want that when residential property it's well, not allowed in residential properties. Well, residential single dwelling, it's not. The, the residential multifamily, it is. Right. So uh, when, when I just want to make sure we understand that that yeah. designation of commercial, are you including residential multifamily in that commercial genre? Okay. I thought that might be it. Okay. Okay. Thank you, Brian. And I, I want to clarify, so I just want to make sure um, this would include... Massachusetts Street. It's commercial district, but it you may have business on the bottom and a, a dwelling unit above some of the you know older buildings historically. Those are absolutely being used as Airbnbs. So uh, I just want to clarify that is a district that perhaps we did not plan on entirely being taken over by Airbnbs when we've spent so much energy trying to make sure people live and move downtown. Um, so. Um, would I be correct in thinking, you know, I could live in my house where I am and I could rent rooms out at my house where I live and own two units downtown? Yes, that, that well, the the owner occupied is, is required in the single family district um, at least, you know, three fourths of the year. And then, yes, that person could own additional units in the down CD district downtown. So if you're looking, the way I look at this, if you're looking at changing the cap of three or increasing it to whatever you chose, we're looking, I think what, what the commission is wanting to look at is doing that everywhere in the city, except for the RS districts perhaps, and allowing that in the residential multifamily, commercial, industrial, and so forth. But I'm not for sure that's, the direction you, you may want to consider, but I just want to make sure everyone understood that people yep. are coming to us wanting to do that more than three, a lot of times in the RN district as well. Okay. Yeah. I brought it forward for the industrial commercial. I'm always for discussion on the other, for sure, on the RM. But it just sounds to, like to me, we're talking about, sorry. Oh, uh, Thank you. Uh, just to clarify what uh, um, Commissioner Shipley said, though, it, it would like downtown when you have commercial on the bottom and you have apartments up top, that would be something that could, I don't know, provide a loophole. Is it, would that be appropriate or, I mean, it wouldn't be a loophole, but if we're trying to, it would, it would, it would be fall outside the purview of strictly residential, right? That is correct. Currently, right now, okay. I'll give you a scenario. A, a person that lives in town or out of town 
they they could have right now the way the code is written three short-term rentals separate dwelling units in the downtown downtown district and that would be that would be code compliant they couldn't have a fourth so so as i understand the issue is well, in a, an apartment complex downtown um you know they can someone owns an apartment building downtown that's in a commercial district they could have all their regular apartments and they could have three airbnbs within that building they couldn't have four mm -hmm. this would you know if we changed it it would allow them if we didn't put a cap on it, it would allow them to have as many um airbnbs as they want in that building that's one situation i mean the other situation is as you said i have a building downtown that has you know commercial on the bottom and has two apartments above i rent both of them as airbnb airbnbs and I have another building down the street that's commercial on the bottom with two apartments above it i can't have four even though I have four units, I can only have three of those being Airbnbs. The fourth one I have to rent out long term. Um, you know, so I mean, I do see you know situations where um, you would definitely have people taking advantage of it, um, taking advantage of it in me in the sense of of not not being advantage in a bad way necessarily, but you know have those uses. Um, you know, so I think that's I think what we're considering here is is that appropriate or do we want to put some limit on it in these buildings? And then you extend that if you're also talking RM districts. Yeah. And I would I would just you know, I went through this process with you yep. many, many meetings and I, I was trying to reconcile you're bringing this up again because my and that was the great example that you had, which is that if you're an apartment building, ultimately you could be running a hotel. And um, that's not really what that's for. So I just wanted to bring that idea back to you. I remember you kind of. Yeah. So uh, I did ask, let me ask a question to Jeff. And that is, is that on some of these buildings, is there split zoning on these at all? Most buildings don't have split zoning. They, they do tend to reside as the whole parcel is in the same zoning district. There are a few instances where that may exist, but it's more of an anomaly than a, a common practice. Okay. Any other questions for staff? Commissioner Sellers, do you have something? No, I'm still nodding at this a bit. Um, I, I appreciate Commissioner Finkelday's illustration because um, that was going to be my my question. I guess in his illustration, Mayor, did he touch on the point that you were making in regards to commercial and, and industrial? As far as, I mean, the point I'm making, or the point I was trying to make anyway, was was that since they are, if they're commercial properties, they're, they're taxed as commercial properties. And um, I struggle with the idea of limiting their ability to do that business, to do business as a commercial entity. So you're, you're, so th this initial, the genesis of this was is to allow commercial property owners to 
participate in short-term rentals? Well, well, they do now, but there's limitation. It's the limitation that's the issue of three per property owner. Um, Which is the same as residential, correct? Residential RS zoning, it's not allowed in RS zoning standalone. Is that correct, Brian? Yes, and RS zoning, you have to be owner occupied. So that's that's how that's how we prevent someone coming in and doing several numerous short-term rentals in RS zoning districts. There was that concern in RS when we revised the ordinance that we it would affect you know potentially the affordable housing and, and the long-term rentals. So therefore, we put that owner restriction on the RS and the plan unit developments and so forth. So in going back to Commissioner Finkeldye's um, scenario and, and following up on uh, Mayor Larson, it is owner. So a con two apartment buildings that are owned by the same entity, the way the code is written right now, could only have three per those two buildings. If it was a different ownership group, then you know, it goes back to the to the three. The three each. So I guess my question is, what? I, I mean, I, I know, Mayor, you discussed you you brought this to our attention. And you want a discussion on it, and we agreed to have discussion on it. What were you hoping or proposing for staff to bring back, or what were you hoping to accomplish from? bringing this up to just expand the number of units that a property owner could have or? Limiting to the, the base zoning districts that are anything but residential. Um, that's where, where I'm at with that, either eliminating it or increasing it or uh, just giving commercial um, property owners the opportunity to, to um, expand their ability to to have their business. But I also take um, Commissioner Shipley's point regarding, well, then, you know, if you have a high rise downtown, you've got 50 units in it. It's, if it is zone commercial, then you could potentially wind up with all those being, being Airbnbs. I hate to yeah. ask an, an overly simple question of Jeff, but just to your point of someone who owns a building and wants to use it, you know, in, I mean, we often are able to just we make those restrictions all the time. This is unusual in that way. Yeah. Mr. Ship, I'm sorry. I think it broke up on me a little bit. I don't think I got your question. So we make restrictions on commercial and industrial property all the time. We recently, there was um, something on the east side of town that would have been allowed to be a restaurant but would not have been allowed to be a car dealership. Um, so we make those kinds of restrictions very specific on commercial industrial frequently, do we not? As part of the zoning code, yes, we do. As part of the, the, the licensing program, I probably have to defer to Brian and Trini's expertise on that one because it is a, it is a bit different in the way that the licensing programs work than the zoning code would want to work. But in, in zoning, yes. answer yeah okay good any other questions for staff i was going to say something commissioner so um was brian going to say something he oh, brian were you, i'm sorry you're going to say something oh he's got no i'm good okay any other questions 
Commissioner Sellers, any questions? Okay, then we'll open it up for public comment at this time. Is this, is this right? Yep. Uh, my name is Sherry Ellen Becker. First, I want to thank everybody that's left here for all the hard work and time and energy they put into making this city a fine place to live. Um, I want to talk about this, the short-term rentals, and I'm only talking about the non-owner occupied, and everything I'm going to say relates to that. There are three thoughts I want you to hold while you have this discussion. That is, and as it relates to affordable housing, as it relates to the un inequitable distribution of these units and how it aligns with your strategic plan. Um, as far as affordable housing, I sent a link, it's in your packet, and it shows there are some very reputable studies that short-term rentals put pressure to inflate housing prices and rents. And we've got a big problem in this town with people that can't afford a place to live. You can be a teacher, two teachers, and you can't afford hardly to find a place to live. And we don't need any more pressure. And these, these things cause pressure wherever they are. And But most of the time, you find them in the affordable, low to moderate income districts because they have to be priced right to rent out. You can't rent out something you've got $600,000 in. And um, they're also the nicer properties are, are protected by homeowners associations and by covenants. You can't rent at Bella Sarah by the night, no matter who you are. And so in your strategic plan, one of your strategic outcomes is the percentage of households that are experiencing housing stress. And when you're inflating the prices, you do that. You cause more stress. And then you, you are not creating ownership options because the people that are looking to buy houses in the low and moderates, unless they're investors, don't have access to ready capital. Getting a home loan to them is a big darn thing. And so then your other outcome, lasting solutions to connect people to housing, when you promote the short-term rentals, wherever they are, you're going to do these three strikes against you in your own strategic plan. So I don't understand why you would want to go down this path. Any other public comment on this item from the audience? If not, we'll go to Zoom. No, Mayor. All right, bring it back up for discussion. Is there any interest from the commission to look at the, the quantities? I had a quick question for Brian. I, when I was looking at the history um, of the, the genesis of our short-term short rental uh, program, there was one point that said if we stood this up, that at the time that you had capacity within current staffing to absorb this work. If we were to look at increasing it even by one unit per property owner, do you believe that you have the current capacity to offset that work? Yeah, I, I think so. Unless, you know, we're talking like tripling it or something to that effect, which I don't think will happen. Um, 
we um, we we license these just like we do with the long term rentals on an annual basis. I think we, um, Trini may comment on how many we have licensed right now. Um, I don't know that off the top of my head, but the licensing is very quick, um, so it, that's not a time time commitment issue. And then um, to refresh everyone's memory or to tell you for the first time, um, we do not inspect these annually. We inspect them on an every two year basis. Um, so um, we have one position vacant right now, but we hope to fill that in the next month. Um, and so we would have two people fully committed to our long-term and short-term rental program. Thank you, Brian. Um, Speaking from a cautionary tale of having reviewed a regulatory entity and pushed wanting to expand a definition or expand a program while also increasing um, its capacity could put a cog in the system and have some unintended um, purposes that uh, some unintended consequences that we don't, you know, of course we would never anticipate, but could really make this discussion even more difficult. Um, you know, I, I feel like it would be counterintuitive of us, Mayor and fellow commissioners to, to start having this discussion now, as we've just discussed an affordable housing plan and a plan to address houselessness in our community. Um, to say, hey, let's just throw in there, let's throw in the pot, also talking about short-term rentals. I don't think the time is right for that. Um, you know, I think it, it it's worth being revisit, having a revision and a revisit of it. I just don't think right now is that time. So I, I would be opposed to starting this process now. Um, I don't think the timing is... I don't think the timing is just quite there yet. So I, I would be opposed to moving any further discussion on this, Mayor. Other commissioners? Yeah, I would agree. Uh, we're playing catch up right now with housing as it is. Hmm. So Even in commercial districts, you know? Uh, just overall. <laughs> well, yeah, we are. Again, Massachusetts Street is a neighborhood also. And we, again, have spent a lot of energy trying to attract people to downtown. We'll continue to be a commercial district if we... You know, I'm, I get a little disappointed, frankly, when I can tell one of them is an Airbnb and that no one's really living there and the people are coming in and out. That's fine. It's commercial. It maybe doesn't bother anyone as much as it might, you know, in the middle of my neighborhood or, or Sherry's neighborhood. But it did take a downtown living unit off the market that, frankly, probably was affordable previous to that. There was a lot of affordable housing, especially above the um, commercial, um, the store shop, the storefronts. Uh, on Massachusetts specifically. Mm -hmm. So um, if anything, I would kick myself for agreeing to that before I would lift the cap on three <laughs> sure. um, at this time. And I, I think that's, a, you know, a great um, a, a diplomatic comment on Commissioner Sellers' point. We may get a really good hold on this in the next five years and reevaluate whether that's necessary but again, housing is a problem everywhere in the United States and cities are saying no completely to this. And we didn't do that. We had, I thought we had a really good compromise in, in what we did. Um, really great ideas from yourself, particularly on that. Um, so I just, I, I don't want to, um, I don't want to open that up at this time. Okay, I appreciate that. 
Yeah, I do think three's low. That's for sure. Commissioner Frickula? We have three people opposed. So yeah. I'd say we move on. <laughs> so, you know, what are your thoughts about expanding it? I mean, I mean, I, um, I think it's a difficult discussion to have in isolation. I think you you would want to look at the in, I think it's a different difficult discussion in isolation and I guess I I don't think this is the right time to have that discussion of short term rentals um to yeah. reopen that. I think if you try to reopen it I think you reopen a lot of things and I don't think that's this is the time to do that. You know um fundamentally i i could say a lot of things about short-term rentals and all that stuff and how i how i land there but i just i would say i understand why you you brought it up i understand why it's interesting i just i can't see how we could have the conversation without having a much larger conversation and i don't think the time's right for that okay well thanks mm -hmm. all right so that's that we will move on to commissioner items or commission items. Anybody have a commission item? Oh, this is commissioner sellers. I do. Um, and my, my requests, I do believe would fit nicely under prosperity and economic security. Um, there's been a lot of conversation on the state level and we've heard it through our chambers. Um, as it relates to early care and education, specifically child care, and the impacts that that has on economic development and economic prosperity in our communities. And there's a lot of great work being done on the state level um, that could, that is in some capacity being echoed on the city level, as well as there's some opportunities to expand that to the county level. And so I would like to propose a work session and I would be more than happy to work with staff on this, um, to have a work session and have individuals come and speak to us uh, who are doing this work locally, as well as on the state level about childcare, early care and education and the role that um, city and county governance uh, can play could play, should play in that work. Um, I think it would be um, well received uh, since many of us, a couple of us do sit on some early care um, work groups. Um, we are parents of children and have been a part of this process and we are taxpayers that pay money into this, uh, pay money into the early care and education system. So I would like to propose um, having a work, uh, work session um, on um, early care and education, specifically child care and its economic benefits and impacts. So that is my, that's my piece. Okay, got that. Is everybody okay with that? Or is there? Yeah. Okay. Sure, I'm fine We'll put it on future agendas, okay. get it scheduled. Any other commission items? Uh, I have one, um, my, one a, my one a quarter for half a year. <laughs> I'm not sure yet. Um, uh, at the NLC, I had the opportunity to go ahead and talk to um, Department of Commerce and in particular, the Economic Development Administration. And I just wanted to bring to all of our attention that uh, they will be having, they got a lot of funding uh, as a result of CHIPS. And they're looking to go ahead and disperse that um, to burgeoning tech hubs. 
all across the com- all across the country. So they're opening up their their vetting process here pretty soon. And I just wanted to bring it to uh, everybody's attention. And uh, so I know we have uh, some entities in town that might be interested in in that, uh, like Core or KUIP or uh, any of the sort. So I just wanted to give it a shout out. Okay. Anything else under commission items? Now we'll go on to future city manager report. The only item is the future uh, meetings report. Okay. That's a public, um, any questions for the city manager, I should say first. Commissioner Sellers, no questions. Oh, I always have questions, but I just don't want to ask any more tonight. <laughs> okay. We'll open it up for public comment then. Any public comment on this item? Anybody on Zoom? No, Mayor. Yeah, okay, bring it back up here. Then we're onto the calendar. Anything on the calendar that needs to be noted or... I guess, um, yeah, next week we're going to be, some of us will be gone over to D.C. to do the um, annual hmm. meet with your representatives. And so, so yeah, we'll be doing that. Anything else? Nope, not. We're um, down to the last item. Okay. Move to adjourn. <laughs> second. I got a first and a second. All in favor? Aye. All right. Hi. Passes five to zero. Have a good night, everyone. Good night.